All right, well, it looks like we got three B's up there this morning. We're going to start with Ben and Billy and Bill. So, uh, good morning, Ben. You got in good. first. How are you, sir? Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, I have a couple of questions. One, uh, we finally got a rain down here night before last. Good. And, uh, but my tomato plants and the eggplants, the leaves kind of turn white uh, on uh I'm not sure what could have caused that, or if there's anything can be done about it. And plants got looking sickly, and and uh, that uh, is, is sort of perplexing to me. Some of the little tomatoes fell off, and and I guess they got beat by the by the rain somewhat. Uh, okay, now they were growing normally, and all the color yeah, looked uh, good. Yeah, and, I, and some of them are still some of them are still look pretty good. And are they are they still oh firm to the touch? They're not like they're wilted over. They just lost their color. Well, no, they they they're pretty sickly. Ah, that's unusual. And you know, you have to think that it's uh, and and this just showed up right after the rain. Well, it was creeping on me. Okay. Ah, yeah, that's that is a little puzzling, and it didn't start from the tips of the leaves. Just the whole plant suddenly started yeah, not looking it, so it, good. Uh, yeah, the whole thing just kind of looks like you ought to pull it up and forget about it. Well, I'm, you know, I it it sounds like you know some sort of disease problem to hit an entire plant yeah. at one time. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not sunburn. Um, well, it starts from the. It, some of them start from the bottom, you know, okay. and the leaves uh, get they'll get yellow. Okay. Uh, and 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 the top stays green. Okay. Well, then, what I think we're looking at is something which is called early blight. It's actually a fungal disease, and uh-huh. what happens? It kind of makes sense because with this particular fungus. It's in the soil, and when we get a hard rain or something, it splashes it up out of the soil and onto the leaves of the plant. And um, so you need to get started with some sort of uh, program. I find that one of the best things against early blight uh, is uh, just soaking some whole ground cornmeal in water. In fact, I usually sprinkle a handful of whole ground cornmeal around the base of each plant because this kind of eliminates a lot of it from the soil, so there's not as much, not as many fungal spores there to get splashed up onto the plant. We're sort of beyond that point. Um, (laughs) If you plant more, and unfortunately it's going to be able to find good transplants at this point, you almost have to start some seed and get some of your own going if you you want to get some more plants going. Well, yeah, I have have some good plants that I planted in in, in, uh, 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 cans okay you know, and, okay and, and so they're 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 you know they're two feet tall okay well i would um around your existing plants i would go ahead and sprinkle a handful of cornmeal around the base of each plant and then i would soak some of that whole ground cornmeal in water overnight and drench or spray it all over the foliage of that plant and give the plants a couple of weeks. Watch the top of the plant. Watch the newest growth on the plant. If it starts coming out green and healthy, you'll know that your plants are on the road to recovery. 
Um, if you have room in your garden to plant some of those other plants in containers, I would do so, but I'd put it in a different part of the garden. I wouldn't put it over next to these plants that have this early blight going on in yeah. you know full force. But in the future, I would always make it part of your routine to, uh, like say, to sprinkle the area around the plants with whole ground cornmeal. I do that, and I do Epsom salts. I, of course, put rock phosphate in the bottom of the hole. And, you know, I had some overgrown plants this time. I had some plants that I'd started from seed that I didn't get in the ground quickly enough. And I did the old thing of, you know, kind of making more of a trench and laying these plants down sideways with just the top mm-hmm. sticking out. My gosh, you ought to see how those plants have taken off and grown because tomatoes are one of the few plants you can do that with. They've grown roots, obviously, all the way up and down that six inches of stem that I buried. And these things, I'm growing them in cages, and uh, if you use the good Texas tomato cages, you know those uh, rings are about maybe eight inches apart from one to the next. And I literally have to go out there daily and tuck those little shoots coming up back inside the ring. I mean, I can go out there one day, and that shoot is four inches below the ring, and the next day when I go out, it's grown so much it's trying to get out where it shouldn't. So... um if uh, if you can plant your new plants deeply, do so. Uh, if you can't, consider turning them on the side and just, you know, have the last six inches of the plant out of the ground, cover up the rest of that stem with soil, and you'll be amazed what a strong, vigorous plant you'll get out of the deal. The uh, uh, the other question that I had, oh, and, and uh, with respect to that, can you buy, is it just cornmeal that you would buy to make cornbread out of? Well, you what you want to avoid, that's a great question. What you want to avoid, Ben, is anything that says enriched or fortified okay. or anything like that. Because in making this baking cornmeal, they actually polish off that outer, tougher part of the corn kernel, and that's where all the goodness is. They take away like 14 essential nutrients, put 10 of them back, and call it enriched. I think that's what mm-hmm. George Bush used to call fuzzy math. I still come out four nutrients short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you get just the old corn chops from the feed store or cornmeal from the feed store, uh, there is a company, Nature's Creation, packages it in small and large bags. They call it fungicide cornmeal. If you buy it at HEB, I think you can get what they call stone ground cornmeal, which is basically okay. what you're looking for is just the whole ground-up kernel of corn, nothing added, nothing taken away. And uh, that's what grows this trichoderma fungus, which in turn is what knocks out so many damaging fungi. Oh, that's that's great. Thank you. And uh, one of the questions about, uh, about squash, uh, the leaves, of course, they they get to, they die uh, as as the squash plant grows. Mm-hmm. Should you cut those off or ignore them, or what should you do? Makes no problem. If you got somebody in the family that's picky about how things look, you can trim them off. But uh, I don't. Usually when they turn fully yellow and brown, they just separate, and I just pick them up and get rid of them. But I don't like making a lot of cuts on plants because they're, you know, more different things can get in there, virus diseases and things like that, and especially on things like squash. They're very prone to some of the different viral diseases, which you can control 
with uh, hydrogen peroxide, but man, I've got too much to do and too little time to do it. I, I want to do the best job I can in the shortest time possible so I get to the next thing on the list. So no, I don't I don't do too much cleaning up other than just picking up the debris once uh, once those leaves are totally gone because if a leaf is half green and half yellow, it's still got plenty of, chlor- of uh, chlorophyll in there, which is capable of absorbing the sun's energy and contributing to the strength of the plant, so to speak. Well, I sure appreciate you. Uh, visiting with me well it is my pleasure i appreciate you getting up and talking with me early i hope you get out and have a wonderful weekend out there thank you sir thank you ben i appreciate it (laughs) bye all right uh billy is up next and then it'll be bill good morning billy good morning dr bob good morning sir this morning hi it's just a nice morning out there it's it definitely feels a little bit more like summer but uh look at that calendar when it says june you know that means summer in texas that's for sure Oh, Lordy, we're getting there. Yeah, Bob, what are these little yellow buttercup-looking flowers that grow four inches in your yard just really quick? Okay, now, do they have a real glossy green leaf that's uh, somewhere between the size of a nickel and a quarter, or do they have a little very small leaf and a much smaller flower? I have not studied them that close. How, I just, how, how big? All I know is you can mow, and the next day they are back with a vengeance. And they close up in the evening. Okay, that tells me what okay. I need to know. They're in uh, a group of, they're a weedy form of a plant that actually is grown as a perennial flower. It's called Turner, or like Turner with an A on the end of it. And uh, they're just a weedy form with much smaller flowers. Uh, they, you know, um, mowing them off. They're, they're so woody that uh, what I do is if we get a good rain, which I didn't get this week. Some folks, even my business partner about 15 miles east of me, got uh, three-quarters of an inch of rain, and I got like two one-hundredths. But after a rain, I pull up whatever I can because, like you say, you cut them off, they come back. You cut them off, they come back. Eventually, your grass, if you have uh, St. Augustine or Bermuda, it will choke them out. But this year we stayed so cool and so wet for so long, the weeds got a real foothold before our basic grasses started growing. So uh, I I think you're wasting your time to spray for them because, like I say, they're one of the toughest little plants out there. They have a glossy leaf. You can burn the foliage back with your vinegar orange oil mix. But now that our basic grasses are starting to grow, I'm just going to mow them as low as I can. And when I get a good rain, I'm just going to get out and, uh, you know, and pull what I can, but do pull because every one of those blasted little flowers makes a little seed capsule that has about six or eight seed in it. And, uh, um, they get to be a real pain. Okay. Speaking of rain, we've got a, ranch down in Zavala, and we had over five inches down there. The oh, man. And this has been a most unusual year weather-wise, and uh, it's the amazing thing to me is how widely the rainfall amounts vary in a very short area. I look almost daily at the maps on this uh, website I've told you about, Cocoraz, C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S, and, yeah. you know, within two or three miles, 
you can go from the person that got half an inch of rain to the person that got four and a half inches of rain and three miles east of there they didn't get any rain at all so uh it's just a matter of being under the right cloud and uh you know it's uh uh, I don't know. Overall, it has been a bad uh, past three months have been good. Early spring was dry. Uh, later this spring, uh, well, let's just say the country's greener than I've seen it the first of June in several years. So uh, we're in pretty good shape now. I just certainly hope it continues. Uh, I will hear from my professional meteorologist friend probably sometime this coming week. And uh, this this is one of these guys works for an environmental services company, and he's paid to be right, and he usually is spot on. And quite sometimes he just you know quite frankly says you know we just really don't know what it's going to do now. But uh, we're we're on the cusp of a change. Uh, we're moving into what is uh, the what meteorologists call inso neutral, which means it's neither El Nino or La Nina. And there's a big question of whether we're going to move toward La Nina, which means we're going to be drying out more, or whether we're going to move back into a weak El Nino, which means the rains are going to continue, uh, if somewhat intermittently. So I hopefully, later this week, I'll get some information that I'll be able to pass along next weekend as to what the, the really smart guys, not these clowns on radio and TV, but the, the fellow who the fellows who have to come a lot closer to getting it right. But right now, it's just it's kind of a toss-up, and uh, all I'm saying is be thankful for what we have and glad the cows are fat, but I'm going to be reducing my herd this next couple of weeks. Just uh, hedge my bets that it's, that it's going to go back to being a more typical Texas summer, which is hot and dry. Well, now would be a good time to do it. We kind of send our herd about three weeks ago. The market is back up a little bit. That's good. That's all good. Uh, the other last question, what about these planters for tomatoes or whatever where you plant them upside down? They're like a hanging basket. If you want to get a pound or two of tomatoes off a plant, uh, they're kind of a cute little novelty. I think a person okay. should harvest about 40 pounds of tomatoes per plant. Okay. And so uh, I guess I like tomatoes better than whoever invented these things. They're cute, and that's about as far as it goes. They call them a topsy-turvy planter, I think. And uh, yes. maybe if you live in an apartment and don't have a piece of ground to grow anything in, it's kind of a fun thing. You can plant some of these little varieties called Tumbling Tom or something like that. And uh uh, it'll give you something to talk about with your friends, but if you really like eating tomatoes, I'm going to grow them in the ground if I can and in a big pot if I can't. No, that's, that's what kind of cute is the best way to describe it. We, yes, sir. We've got them in the ground and everything, and I just thought, well, you know, it's kind of a novelty, so uh, well, I'm just curious. If if you want to grow them as a little ornamental feature, since you do have your production tomatoes out in the ground, <laughs> Excuse me, nothing wrong with that, but uh, it's certainly not the way you're going to put a lot of tables or a lot of tomatoes on the table, that's for sure. All righty. Well, I appreciate all the good information as usual. So really? we, we thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. You have a great weekend, and I know we'll talk again. And uh, let me get Bill in here before the end of the hour. Good morning, Bill. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I think I, I think I asked you last last year about the roaches in my queen palms. Yes, sir. I've got a half a dozen mature queen palms that just are full of roaches. Right. And they're too big to hit with spinosad soap. So yeah, and dust around the base. Um, 
if you can get the the, the uh, DE diatomaceous earth, if you can get it on them in a dry form, it will kill them. Roaches are kind of like ants. They don't have blood vessels, so to speak. All the fluids in their body are in something called a hemocele. And when you get the DE on them, it starts cutting. They start dehydrating and they die. The how how tall are your queen palms? Well, they're about twenty five foot. And so the place you're seeing the roaches, of course, is underneath those old uh, what were once were fronds that you've you know cut off the long part of the frond, but they've got that kind of bottom part of the frond still up against the trunk, and that's where the roaches right. are. Yeah. Uh-huh. I would, when we're going to have dry weather for, you know, 24 to 48 hours, I would try to dust that as heavily as you can with diatomaceous earth. Uh, putting them, you know, down at the base is not not likely to get to them because, as you may have noticed, those blasted things fly as well as run up and down. But uh, yeah. if you can get up there and... The horticultural diatomaceous earth is not dangerous. If the swimming pool filtering stuff, you don't want to breathe. And because many people aren't smart enough, not gardeners, but the general public are not smart enough to figure out that there are, is more than one kind of diatomaceous earth, um, the horticultural kind is not the inhalation hand hazard. Now, I'm not going to you know, sit there and just knowingly breathe in a whole bunch of it, but the stuff that you see on the labels about wearing respirators and things like that. No, that's aimed at a different kind of diatomaceous earth. But if you can get up there, even if uh, even if you've got a, a stable stepladder or something like that, get up there high enough where you can sling it around and really get it kind of filtering down into those big old sheaths up and down the trunk. And you'll never get rid of all of them, but you'll sure reduce the numbers of them. And you can do the same thing with the cycads? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no phytotoxicity. That means that uh, it's not going to make the plants more susceptible to sunburn. Uh, and if it, you know, if you put it out there and it stayed there a day or two and another family member says, I don't like all the white stuff all over the plants, you just get your hose out and wash it off. But it has to be dry to do a good job of killing the roaches. So, uh, I'd pick a day when it looks like we're going to be in a dry pattern for two or three days. And DE is cheap. You can get it uh, in a relatively good-sized container if you need it. The secret is just trying to spread it around and getting it down in all those little crevices. Okay, great. The other thing is uh, I water a lot. All of our plants are in pots because we take them in in the winter months. Yes, sir. Uh, is it uh, is it okay to water every time with the uh, – with fertilizer absolutely just dilute it down you know some people um you talk about uh fertilizing weekly weekly but uh if you're diluting it you know way on down i mean if you're using let's say has to grow that you normally be using it an ounce per gallon if you've diluted it down to maybe half a teaspoon per gallon you can use it every time you water uh some people say well i'd rather use a concentrate and not feed as often but you know do you like to nibble, or do you want to have two or three good meals at a time? You're just talking about giving those plants enough to nibble on, and it's a great way to grow plants. And uh, yep. you can, it doesn't matter if you get it on the foliage. I want to see the majority of your fertilizer going on the ground so it's supporting the roots. But, uh, no, if it's uh, if you're doing it every time, then you don't have to wonder about remembering when the last time you fertilized was. Yeah, the the grow you can use it, uh, uh, I mean, it's not... 
specific to a particular plant. You oh, no, sir. I use it on everything from orchids to eggplant to uh, spinach. Gotcha. And the, the uh, spinosad soap, can you... Uh, how often do you need to put that on your tomato plants to keep the little green worms off? Um, green worms, I'm going to go after with uh, more like BT because I can put that on once or twice a season. I use the spinosad soap mainly for the little stink bugs and things like that, and I just apply as needed. Okay. Okay. Well, super. Thank you very much for uh, helping me. Always a pleasure, Bill. You have a great weekend. We'll talk again. And um, no reason not just to go straight to the phone lines. I'll punch that button and say, good morning, Kathy. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Nice short wait that time, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, so the first question is, I have a lemongrass. It's in a three-gallon pot. Okay. My son bought it for me from Mother's Day. Very good. Now, I have grown lemongrass for years, but I had a yard. Now I'm stuck in an apartment. <laughs> so I know they love sun, yes, and we ma'am. haven't had enough sun for it. Okay. Um, so, and I, I'm pretty sure, of course, it probably needs to be transplanted. But in the meantime, uh, it's laying down, like you were saying, so it needs some kind of nutrient. Now, what about coffee grounds? Yes. I've heard... Coffee grounds are very, very low in actual fertilizer. They have a little acidity to them, which is good. They add a lot of organic material, but they do not have enough, uh, especially for something growing in a container, to be your sole source of fertilizer. I'd be looking at little has to grow, a little bit of uh, Medina's uh, new fish fertilizer product. Espoma makes a good liquid. Um, in containers, 99% of the time, I prefer a liquid over a dry fertilizer, but, uh, uh, little coffee grounds aren't going to hurt anything. Little coffee is not going to hurt anything. It's not loaded up with cream and sugar, but I don't think that that alone is going to be all your lemongrass needs. Now, the other thing to keep, uh, fish emulsion is great. Now I like Medina's because it doesn't, it doesn't have a foul odor to it. It, would remind you, uh, my engineer and I were just talking about going to the coast. And, it, you know, it might remind you a pleasant experience uh, in a coastal area, but it doesn't stink. But uh, the fish emulsion products are very, very good. And, of course, uh, certainly good for anything that you're going to be using for culinary purposes. Well, now let me ask you this real quick. Uh, I do have cats, and mm-hmm. one of them loves that lemongrass. Uh-huh. So are they going to be more attracted to it with that fish oil on it? Not really. Not really. They're what they're attracted to is the roughness of it, and uh, if and, and you know I love my big kitty cat and our kitty cats at the nursery. What you might do to protect your your lemongrass, get uh, and just get a you know I- any kind of pot of potting soil. A uh, good nursery will have what is called the um, uh, cat grass seed, and oh, uh-huh. I. Yeah, I try to keep a pot go- growing that I that I <laughs> offer to the cats. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> they tend to like that better than they like the lemongrass. And Dr. Kirby, my good vet friend that I get to broadcast with on Sunday, tells me there are just all sorts of things in there that are good for the cats. And uh, I'd, okay. I'd kind of, if they like fresh greens, I'd just provide them with, so, shall we say, an alternative food source and tell them right. to... Tell them to leave the uh, leave the lemongrass alone for Kathy. Yeah, did you know that lemongrass has the uh, property, the 
anti-inflammatory property in it. Oh, it's got all kinds of uh, good things. Right. It's anti-inflammatory. It uh, is not magic, but it is somewhat repellent no. to mosquitoes. Um, it has, golly, there just uh, there are a lot. Plus, it's delicious. It's used so widely in Thai cooking. But uh, right. the other thing I was going to tell you, and, and you are so right, it does need as much sun as you can get. It. it is not a house plant. If you've got a balcony, if you've got a porch, um, if you don't have room for a container, you know, plant it. Uh, you may you may need to divide it a bit, but uh, get a little bit of it. Start it in a hanging basket. You can get a 12-inch plastic hanging basket and grow a wonderful crop of lemongrass if that gets it up and out of the way and out where it gets a little bit more sun. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I can just divide it. Absolutely, it's uh, okay. you know it oh, just. Oh, I know it's got those tiny little roots and hundreds, thousands of them. Yes, absolutely, but lots and lots of little shoots coming up, and because mm-hmm. it's not cold hardy, most people who really like lemongrass will grow it in the ground where you have that ability, and then in the fall, oh, I... just dig up a couple little sections of it and pot up to keep protected from the freezing weather so you'll have it to set back out in the spring because it's most years even a light freeze is enough to kill it so most years you have to treat it as an annual grass and you know uh, being in the plant business we certainly don't mind if you come you know spend two bucks and buy yourself a little new start of it every spring but a lot of people will just divide it and keep just a small portion of it to grow on through the winter to replant the next year okay one more quick question a couple weekends ago uh, you were talking about a solution to sewer gnats. Yes. And, and Yes. And what was that? Well, it is uh, your so-called sewer gnat. You know, underneath your sink, underneath uh, all of your, you know, um, whether it's kitchen sink, bathroom sink, wherever, you have a little thing that is called a P-trap, which is a U-shaped right. thing that stays filled mm-hmm. with water. That's to keep gases from coming back up through the pipe. So it serves a very oh. essential purpose, but that's where your sewer gnats want to get in and live and breed, and then they just fly up out through the drain and, you know, just a real nuisance. Yeah. But if you will, when you're through washing dishes, when you're through doing your morning ablutions in the bathroom or when you get out of the shower or whatever else and it's there's not going to be water running through there for a few minutes put a small amount of orange oil i like medina's orange oil concentrate and we're talking maybe half a teaspoon uh just pour it down the drain it will kill the larvae of the sewer gnats and any adults that are in there i mean literally within a few seconds um and just yeah Mm -hmm. but anywhere that you have a fixture like a bathroom sink a kitchen sink uh even your shower um just a very small amount of orange oil down that when it's going to be a few minutes before you run the water again and let me tell you you i I had a a lady i was talking to recently and she said her plumber charged her two hundred dollars and didn't do a thing she bought a small Mm -hmm. bottle of orange oil in our suggestion and was sewer nap free in 24 hours so it really does work that's great yeah yeah all right well thank you so much we listen to you every weekend well you need to get a life but i'm glad you listened kathy and i sure appreciate it have a wonderful weekend all righty thank you bye all right hal's up next and it'll be rosa and barbara good morning hal uh, good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm great this morning. How about yourself? Well, I'll tell you, it's uh, getting better, but I have a question for you. It's, I haven't talked to you in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, we have St. Augustine's grass, uh, and it's, it's beginning to show brown.
Okay. We tried to lift it uh, to see if it was ground, uh, just to bare ground, and it's not. So it's just the brown leaves. Okay. You probably have had a little bit of this disease, uh, Rhizoctonia. We call it brown patch fungus. That's going to go on its way on its own naturally because brown patch shows up when we have uh, uh, cool nights and warm days. And sadly, I think those days are just about behind us now. If you want to totally stop it, sprinkle a little bit of the whole ground cornmeal around. I would fertilize, good organic fertilizer, if you haven't done so within the past two or three months because the brown patch is going to stop, and now we want that St. Augustine to spread back in and fill up those little areas where you had some browning, and uh, you're just good organic fertilizer, weekly watering if we don't get a good thorough soaking rain, and uh, you ought to be back to yard of the month quality in just a few weeks. Okay, Bob, I have one other question. Please, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, we have uh, we had to eliminate four of our mountain laurels okay. trees that were seventeen years old. Okay, they were, they were growing. Uh, all of a sudden, my wife looked up, saw these worms at the top. Okay, and uh, we naturally just for her at all. She couldn't. We couldn't get up there and uh, eliminate them. So we just had them cut out. Okay. And what is and also one uh about two or three summers ago, the garage door going out from the garage to the to the outside, uh she couldn't get the thing open. And finally did get it open all around the the uh sides and the top of the door were these these uh looks like little uh miniature worms okay i mean they were thick on there okay well a couple of different things at play here um mountain laurels do get a like a tent caterpillar usually when they are stressed and when mountain laurels are stressed it's usually from staying too wet but um you can eliminate those caterpillars very effectively with uh, products that are totally safe for you puppy dogs like spinosad or what we call bt bacillus syringiensis but mountain laurels on their own rarely get those unless they're stressed they can be weather stressed they can be buried too deeply they can uh you know, some they've had compaction over the roots, things that stress a mountain laurel make them susceptible to these little caterpillars, but um, they are easily controlled with non-toxic sprays. But uh, uh, as far as the garage, I suspect that rather than a caterpillar, you probably had a bunch of what are called millipedes. They're like uh, their little segmented worm has two legs per segment as opposed to a centipede, which has one. But... Um, you can dust some diatomaceous earth around, and, and nothing wrong with dusting DE around your garage to control fleas, to control, uh, you know, things like millipedes, things like pill bugs. Um, I would just, anywhere that it's going to stay dry, I'd dust a little DE around there periodically, and you should get those uh, creatures under control very quickly and very safely. Okay. My, my wife told me she had a, she was trying to get, get them off, and she finally got them off by and ended up scraping them with a with a uh, knife, a garden knife, mm-hmm. and she finally got them off that way, and had to had to use a light light sander, 
it's a steel door, mm-hmm. and, it, and it, that darn thing was it uh, was also inside the inside the uh, around the inside mm-hmm. where the door closes. But well, I take it you don't open this garage door too often. It had been that way for a while to get them to be yes. that much of a problem. Yes, I use a wire brush on things like that, and if it's real bad, I put the wire brush on the end of my cordless drill. But uh, I find a wire brush is a great way to get rid of that residue and, uh, um, you know, just wear some gloves. And and that's the easiest and best thing I have found. But if you keep a little DE dusted around, uh, diatomaceous earth dusted around inside the garage, uh, you'll control those things and not have such a problem to worry about. Uh, Bob, would you use on that brown patch also, would you use the... Beneficial nematodes? Well, nematodes aren't going to do anything at all against brown patch. Brown patch is a fungus disease where the nematodes are going to control grub worms and various and fleas and various insect problems. We are getting to the time of year. I would be watching for June bugs. I've not started seeing June bugs yet, but when you see June bugs, that's the time to put out your beneficial nematodes because the June bugs lay the eggs and produce the grub worms, which do just immense amounts of damage to all kinds of grasses. But uh, unless or until you start seeing the June bugs, I, or unless you're fighting fleas, you mentioned you have dogs, so we know what a common issue fleas can be. But uh, unless you're fighting fleas, I would hold off putting out your beneficial nematodes. I don't think you really accomplish much. Well, thank you very, very much, Bob. Always a pleasure, Hal. You get out and have a good weekend, and don't wait so long to call me again. Okay, but thank (laughs) Thank you you so much. much. Bye. All right, all those lines filled up, so don't dial right this second. We're going to talk to Rosa, Barbara, Mary, and Joe, and we start with Rosa. Good morning. Morning. How you doing this morning? I'm good this morning. How about you? I'm I'm glad this is radio and not TV. As Don and I always say, uh, at least with radio, you only have to sound awake. You don't have to look <laughs> awake. But uh, my my brain is more alert than my eyes are right now. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Let me ask you one quick question. Sure. I have several pecan trees, but they're being attacked by some kind of worm. They've already gone to two of them and lost all the canopy on it. And I don't know if I've lost those trees completely, but they're starting on the third one. I wanted to ask you, what could I spray on those things? And it is a caterpillar. It's actually a yeah, worm that's defoliating. Webworm, and the, I only found like one one tree that actually had a web on it. The other mm-hmm. ones are they're worms, and okay. they are eating through those trees like crazy. Well. The best thing to spray is something called BT, Bacillus thuringiensis. It's harmless to people and pets. Um, We don't normally like to spray it way up in the air because it kills all caterpillars, uh, and we only want to get the bad ones. But um, the one thing that is not on the bottle of BT is that if you'll add a little bit of molasses to it, like a teaspoon per gallon of spray, it'll make it about 20 times more effective. But uh, it will stay on the trees for an extended period of time. It's a stomach poison to the caterpillars. Uh, They take a bite of a leaf that has this on it. They stop feeding immediately and then they're dead within a you know matter of a few hours uh, but it's totally harmless to people and pets so that's going to be your best you know immediate solution to go after the caterpillars now long term don't knock down the wasp nest around your houses those old paper wasps the yellow jackets the red and black wasps mm-hmm. those things 
I have so many of them around my house that I never have a webworm in my pecan trees, and I've got every size, every shape pecan tree you can imagine. And uh, the webworms never really got started until we got those aerosol wasp sprays that made it so easy to kill the wasps. And I know the wasps can sting, but generally if we leave them alone, they leave us alone. But those are one of your natural predators. Next year, I would recommend about the time that you're that the leaves are uh, getting ready to come out on the pecan trees and this is usually about april there is a tiny little wasp called a trichogramma wasp they don't sting you barely be able to see them but you can hang out little cards that have several thousand uh little developing wasps on there and these tiny little things will totally stop the caterpillars by parasitizing their eggs. And uh, it's what all your commercial pecan people are using to both protect the nut crop and the trees. But since you already have the eggs hatched out, since you have the caterpillars, it's too late for the trichogramma. You're going to have to go with the BT as a spray to kill them. But next spring, about April, these little cards cost 5 or $6. You put out about four or five of them per acre, and you just simply don't have any uh, caterpillars or webworms to deal with. And you get those at uh, just a nursery? A good or? nursery or feed store, yeah. But like I say, that's that's to get them before they hatch. Once they hatch and start feeding, your BT is the best solution out there. And don't forget to add a little molasses to it. Okay, so the ones that have already lost the canopy, are, are those, they probably won't have leaves again this year? Oh, they should come out. They should come out again fairly quickly, especially considering we've had some good rain. A little bit of fertilizer would be a good idea. Pecans always want to check the base and be sure they haven't been buried too deeply. But, no, those trees should put on new foliage very quickly. Okay. All right. Well, I thank you so much for the information. Good question. I appreciate the call, Rosa. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Barbara's turn next. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Good morning. Um, my my question is about comfrey. Okay. I have a new uh, comfrey plant in the ground, and after it was planted, I got my herb book out, and I didn't like what I read. It says it's. A, I've got the book here in front of me. It says it's a deep-rooted, tough, spreading perennial that can be invasive. And the roots can be difficult to dig up, and I would like to know, is this accurate? Is it difficult to dig up? And the other concern I have is I don't want the roots spreading into other parts of the herb, herb garden is, um, and, and taking over. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you know, I have never, uh, it, it's partly true, and maybe if you lived in the Northeast, the biggest and most beautiful country I've ever seen was in some botanical gardens up in Pennsylvania. Here in South Texas, if you want it to die out, you simply stop watering it. It's as easy as that. I have never seen it become invasive, and I've had the same big comfrey plant growing in the corner of my yard for i don't know 10 15 years it's my go-to source if i tangle with the scorpion or chiggers or blasted fire ants or things like that but i do not consider it an invasive herb by any means now i will tell you this because it is one of those plants that can form new plants from the roots once it's grown if you dig it up it's probably going to come back in the same area over and over but in my garden that's not a bad thing but i've never seen it invasive to the point that it crowded out anything or created any problems and like i say if it ever if it ever is growing more rapidly and thickly than you like just simply reduce the water and it will back off on its growth okay well thank you very much 
puts my mind at ease. Yeah, it's Comfrey's very much worth having, and uh, if you're able to, you know, get a little start or two here and there to share with friends, I, I, I do not recommend i know some people will make a tea out of it and drink it Uh, i don't recommend that there's some things in there that i would not want to take internally but as far as a is putting it on the skin it will do more to uh, cure a brown recluse spider bite than anything the doctors are doing right now in fact my buddy dan kirby that i get to do the pet show with on sundays dan had a recluse bite and uh you know he we both go to the same incredible dermatologist i don't mention greg thompson by name but i think he's the best of the best but uh he did everything dermatologists can do uh abraded the tissue as they say and said dan this is all we can do and uh dan started putting the comfrey on it on a daily basis and it was healed in two weeks and uh so uh it is really good to have around it is not instant but it takes the pain out of a spider bite it takes the pain out of a wasp sting a scorpion sting when you live in the country like i do like it or not you get these things occasionally but uh i don't know i i wouldn't be without having a little comfort close at hand but i would certainly not worry about it being a problem okay well thank you very much you're sure welcome barbara thank you for the call this morning thank you <laughs> bye all right, let's get back to gardening here. It's going to be Mary and Carl and Lou. There's one line open. Grab that if you'd like to. And I say good morning, Mary. Good morning, Bob. How are you this fine day? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I got a chuckle when you went to break because the first commercial was for Roundup. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> you can tell how much I have to say. And uh, I'm just having my uh, discussion with my engineer about uh Oh, and I'm I'm so glad they don't try to micromanage me like they do some people. They basically let me show up and do my show and go as long as they don't speak too badly of anyone. But uh, I, I was sitting there listening to that commercial and thinking, thank God most of my listeners are smart enough to uh, recognize it's not not something I would do. And the ones that aren't, well, maybe that's Darwinian. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing to me that some of the things that are out there and I, you know, even even uh, Bear has stopped. They used to be Monsanto Bear uh, and that's how they advertise themselves. But with these big jury settlements against them and 13,000 pending lawsuits over Roundup, uh, they've pretty much dropped the Monsanto part of their name. So uh, I guess I didn't hear them say Monsanto Roundup, but even even Roundup, I was starting to think was a little bit more of a uh, a, a dirty word, so to speak. But I guess they're into bug poisons now and uh, instead. But anyway, I'm with you. I, I, I kind of shake my head and grin when I hear that kind of stuff, because I know my listeners aren't going to respond to it unless it's to go participate in the march against Monsanto or something. There you go. There you go. Well, how's everything um, in your okay. world? Okay. I have some issues with tomato plants and a question about pecan trees. Okay. Um, planted my tomatoes, I called a couple weeks ago about uh, early blight, so I'm dealing with that too. Um, planted my tomatoes like you recommend with the Epsom salt and cornmeal and all that. Um, but my tomatoes have now developed blossom end rot. Okay. And they're kind of stagnant in their growth and stagnant in tomato set. They're really not setting on more tomatoes. So I don't know if those two things are related I, or what I have going on. Well, I, I think it's largely weather-related. 
Um, okay. And tomatoes like to stay on the dry side. And I don't know which of the clouds you've been under. I'm on the dry side of the rainfall lately where a lot of Kendall County is, you know, fairly moist. And um, that is contributing to the early blight problems and the fact that you may still be getting some blossom end rot. I would, you know, Epsom salts, that's the cheapest thing in the world when you go get the not not the fancy smelly you know, ones, but just old basic Epsom salts. I would be mixing some of that with water, about two tablespoons per gallon. And when your tomatoes need water, go ahead and water them in with that for whatever reason. Uh, it just did not get all the job done as far as getting the uh, things back in balance, sodium and magnesium back in balance in the soil. But you're not going to hurt a thing by boosting it up a little bit. But at this point, let's dissolve the Epsom salts in water, pour it around the base of the plant, and see if we can't stop that blossom end rot. Now, be sure that you are not watering too frequently. I'm going to tell you that since your plants are up and of a fairly good size, I'm only going to be watering maybe, you know, every four, five, six days and uh, one of the one of the big problems is just things are staying too wet. And tomatoes, uh, you have to be you can't plant your tomatoes and your beans on the same row because the beans won't water every day or two. The tomatoes won't water a time or two every week. So be careful you're not right. keeping them too wet. Okay, okay. Um, I had seen something about making a slurry out of pelletized lime and water and watering with that should i just not mess with that and just pull out my epsom salt yeah waste of time here um you know lime is a very useful thing in parts of the country with acidic soil and no limestone um Uh, i mean we have so much lime in the soil in our water everywhere else that's kind of like putting gypsum on the soil totally total waste of time here so yeah if i were going to do anything with lime i mean you can you can still do things like make a slurry out of it and paint it on tree trunks to stop scald and things like that. But okay. uh, unless you are, you know, in some little weird area where you brought 25 dump trucks, I say that jokingly, but down to the Botanical Garden when they built their East Texas area, they brought in like 600 truckloads of East Texas soil or something like that to be okay. able to grow the pine trees and things like that. But no. The use of lime in okay. uh, in most of this area is a total yeah, waste of time. Is. Sure, makes sense. Okay, um, and is is the stagnant in the growth and the tomato set probably related to that too? It may be. How are you fertilizing, and how often? Uh, I just fertilized uh, Tuesday or Wednesday with pasture grow. Okay, that should. I'm I'm trying to feed every two or three weeks. And uh, okay. I think that's going to pick up your growth. What the okay. the thing to keep in mind, and I know you have a good analytical mind, so this will make sense to you. But a tomato or any other plant has X amount of energy that it produces in its leaves. It takes Y amount of energy just to stay alive, just basic life processes. And uh, we have what is called the compensation point. And that's when the tomato plant or any other plant has met all of its basic needs and then any extra energy it can put into growth. As the nights get warmer, as the days get warmer, the compensation point goes up and the plants simply have to spend more of their energy staying alive so they have not as much left over to produce that good new growth and all. So 
Um, okay. A lot of the slowing down is just simply weather related, but uh, just be sure it's not nutrient related. And uh, um, I need to get you sometime a jug of Medina's new uh, liquid fish product. I'm alternating that with my has to grow on a lot of things, including the orchids, and I'm just super pleased with the results. And uh, you know, as as we say, stay tuned. We'll see how it goes through the whole summer. But it may be something you want to you switch out with the has to grow every now and then just to get a little variety in the diet, so to speak. Okay, and that one's called it's. It's. Uh, I think they just call it liquid fish fertilizer or something like that. It's patterned after okay. the old ladybug product, which was called John's Special Recipe. But um, okay. yeah, it. Uh, I'll uh, next time I have a, a chance, since uh, we obviously know each other, I'll I'll pick up a gallon and uh, drop it by your hubby's fire station, and you give it a try. Oh, and uh, I'll tell Medina to give me a couple extra gallons for friends to experiment with, and uh, I'll let you use some in your garden and see if you're as pleased as okay. I am. Okay, and obviously you carry that. I don't know if we have it on the shelves yet, actually. I told oh, Patrick okay. I wanted okay. to use it for myself for a couple of months, it, but uh, uh-huh. I'm pleased okay. to the point that I think I told him last week, get some and put on the shelves, because okay. I'm real pleased both with how the plants like it and by the fact that it doesn't have the obnoxious odor that so many fish products do. Right, right. Okay. Um, and then pecan trees and trichogramma wasps uh-huh. i've hung the cards once this season uh-huh. um, but nobody up here carries them and i don't make it to you as often as i should um is it too late to put out another round it's not too the- late to put out another round you've taken care of the nut case bearers and that's what we make the early application of or, or put out the first crop of trichogramma for Right. Uh, who knows what kind of summer this is going to be for webworms. And putting out additional trichogramma this time of year, the main thing that you would be accomplishing is stopping the webworms. Now, the fact that you put out the trichogramma wasp early, as long as they are finding caterpillar eggs to parasitize, there's still a lot of little trichogramma buzzing around out there, not the tens of thousands that you get when you put out the little cards. But uh, it's strictly optional. If you have the opportunity, yeah, I'd put out a few here and there just for webworm control, but uh, um, it's I don't think it's as mandatory as the early application, so to speak. Okay, that sounds great. You've answered my questions. It's what I'm here for. You guys have a wonderful weekend. We'll talk again. Thanks, Thank Mary. You, you You're too. welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Carl's up next. Good morning, Carl. Hey, good morning. I have several tomato questions. Okay. Um, my main one is what's getting at my tomatoes. Um, they uh, have, they'll be, they'll be like a, what I describe as almost like a sapsucker hole okay. in it. Okay. And they might make multiple ones. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like it's like, it looked like something ate that, you know. Probably or, or poked a hold. Probably a mockingbird. Is it okay? Yeah. Okay. And okay, go ahead. There are you can get if the damage gets severe. Uh, you do one of two things: you either put out something to try to frighten the mockingbirds away. Uh, like an owl decoy or a rubber snake or something like that, or you can get a very fine, inexpensive netting. You simply drape okay. over the cages to keep them away from your tomatoes. Okay, perfect. Because I, I was thinking stink bugs or something like that, and I no. was thinking I can't see anything. My tomato plants are doing great. I use no. It's the, those are actual holes in the fruit, and birds are the culprits, and it's usually mockingbirds. Uh, okay, because I have I have a, a barn swallows. Martins and dragonflies my whole <laughs> little thing. You know, I'm thinking, I don't, no, you know, those, they, they eat on the wing. No, mockingbirds are fruit eaters. 
Okay, and then here's another one. Um, on, uh, particularly on my sun gold, the the, the leaves. Well, it's seven and a half foot, eight foot tall. You know, in my cages mm-hmm. or whatever. But the the all the leaves are starting to yellow and go go. Uh, I guess yellow uh, all the way up it and stuff. You I probably have some yeah some early blight. Soak some cornmeal in water and spray. Um, I would do that as soon as you can. It's uh, early blight's bad this year because of all the rain. Okay, and if I didn't do that, just uh, does it affect the? I mean, what, I mean, it's seven foot tall. It's it's you know, it's 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 fruited from the very bottom all the way up to the top, you know, and it it will eventually the plant will lose vigor. Uh, all the okay. fruit that's on there is going to develop normally, and you know what a heavy producer sun gold is. But um, and as we get into hotter, drier weather, that's going to help naturally control it. But uh, again, I want to I want to get rid of early blight when I can because okay. I want to stretch out the picking season as okay. long as possible. Okay. Okay, I do see it on a couple other other um, uh, plants too. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then I guess my last question. Oh, okay, um, I had a bunch of seeds from the fall planting mm-hmm. come up. You know, volunteer. I let those come up and stuff. And they're all different sizes. Some are producing uh, fruits, uh, 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 fruit already. Uh, others are have come up in between my major mm-hmm. plants and stuff. Would those be good for the fall? Or are those going to be? I mean. I leave them alone if they're small fruited. Uh, if they have small fruited genes to them, you're going to get production all summer. Uh, you probably get some production on into the fall. As long as your plants are not really being crowded, I tend to think that it's anything that's vigor enough, vigorous enough to sprout and come up and grow after a winter is worth preserving in the garden. And uh, I care what a tomato tastes like. I don't care what it looks like. So I, I leave those little seedlings until they, unless there's so many of them that is crowding out my others. Okay. 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 And then um, at the end of this season, the big fruit uh, 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 varieties I have mm-hmm. and or the small ones, are any of those good to coppice for the fall? And they would they be as vigorous or as good producing by doing that and keeping them? Well, if you have if you have determinate tomatoes, you might as well pull them up. They're through. If you have indeterminates, which are like most of your cherries and many of the big fruited, especially the heirloom varieties, yes. uh, they're like a big vine. You keep them healthy; they'll keep them producing until they freeze. So, but if you're growing determinates like tycoon and a lot of these so-called rodeo tomatoes, yeah. you might as yeah. well replace those. They're not gonna yeah. not gonna do much more. Okay, and now they're already, you know, the the small fruit ones are up, you know, they're filling up the cages all the way up to the seven, eight foot uh-huh. height or whatever. Uh-huh. The other ones are like at, at the, you know, the, uh, the Cherokee Purple, Lemon Boy, Better Boy. The, those are all like at the five foot and stuff. <laughs> do do I five six foot or whatever? Do I do I do I you know? Do I need to cut those, though? No, 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 no. Fertilize them, leave them, and it just means you won't have to bend over as far to pick the fruit. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's it. I appreciate it. Thank My you. pleasure. Good to talk to you, Carl. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right. It's going to be uh, Lou, Bob, Jim, and Donna, and Lou is up first. Good morning, Lou. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have two questions. I have hey. two questions. Um, one of them has to do with scalped Bermuda grass. Okay. And another one has to do with uh, further pruning a. Um, peach tree okay so let's start with the grass so i'm not able to do yard work for the next few months so a sweet benevolent friend came over last weekend and mowed and edged my yard and last summer in the backyard i did the break breaking work myself 
Mm-hmm. I, I'm walking up a hill. I'm outside. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm panting. I'm getting my walk in. Oh, and you're getting the humidity, and it'll make you pant this morning and clean out I those know. pores, too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So last summer, I I put down uh, Bermuda sod in my back porch all the way, I mean, in my backyard, thickly, you know, all the way around my porch. And that's probably about 30 feet. Okay. You know, 15 on one, 15 on the other. And so it's been doing really well. Mm -hmm. So when my friend edged, he uh, used the edger in a different way, and he wound up scalping my Bermuda about a six-inch wide area across the entire line of my porch. Okay. And he took all the blades off, and so... Yeah, don't worry about do that. I, don't worry about that. How do I fix that? <laughs> you you sit back and give it a little time. Bermuda has underground runners. Die. No, uh-uh. If it were St. Augustine, that would be a problem, because St. Augustine runners up are on top of the ground. Bermuda runners are under the ground. It's going to come back very full, very thick. If you're going to do anything to help it, just put a little extra fertilizer on there. You can use uh, liquid or dry and if, as you say, you're not going to be able to do a lot of yard work, one thing about Bermuda no. is it doesn't really care. Um, you can let it grow six inches tall. <laughs> now, when you do get around to mowing it late summer or fall, it's going to be totally brown because all the green's going to be up on top. But then it's going to come mm-hmm. out from the base. And Bermuda is, mm-hmm. I mean, up north, they intentionally scalp it. They use something called a verticutter that gets down mm-hmm. and literally mows it off at the top of the soil. And that would be death to St. Augustine. Bermuda is just going to come back thicker and greener than ever before. And all on earth you need to be doing is, like I say, maybe a little fertilizer if you haven't fertilized in the past two or three months. And uh, if we don't... I have. I have done that. I I fertilized with your fertilizer. Then spend your time walking up hills and breathing, uh, taking in the sights and sounds (laughs) of nature and stop worrying about your Bermuda. Do I need to water it extra? Um, not extra. If we don't get a soaking rain once a week, it would benefit from a weekly thorough watering. But, uh, I, uh, you know, overdoing it is just going to waste water. And no matter how wet we are, we don't have any water to waste in South Texas. So, uh, no, okay, I'm, cool. I'm not going to worry about a thing. Lou. I just, uh, like I say, if, uh, just, just look the other direction two, three weeks from now, <laughs> it's probably going to be the thickest, greenest grass in your yard. Okay, so what about, there are some areas of Augustine in the front yard that kind of got the same scalping, but mm-hmm. to a much lesser degree, really just along the edge of the driveway and the sidewalk. Uh, Do I need to be worried about that? Not if you fed. Now, it does need water, but uh, okay. uh nice thing about okay. St. Augustine, it'll spread in, even if there are areas down to bare ground, it'll spread from the sides and fill that in very quickly. And what you said about the runners, I'm sorry, it's a run-on question on the grass, St. Augustine. With regard to the runners, there's so many that are like, they're running across the top. Don't worry about it. So you just leave them alone and let them run. Yeah, just leave them alone. If some of them get mowed off, it doesn't hurt a thing. All right, it's five minutes after seven o'clock on a nice Saturday morning uh, out there. I hope you're planning to get out and enjoy, whether you're going to the park, whether you're going hiking in the hill country or... 
Whether you like my good engineer this morning, maybe you're going to spend a little time at the coast. Uh, you know, kids are out of school now, and it's time to get out and play and enjoy. For a lot of us, that been, means spending more time in the garden and in the yard. And uh, anyway, that's what we love to talk about Saturday and Sunday mornings. So let's just keep the conversation going. It's going to got to skip around a little bit, take them in order. Bob, Donna, Paul, and James, and uh, a man with a great name up there. Uh, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Morning, sir. I have two I have two questions. Okay. First one is grasshoppers. Uh huh. What do I? What do I? I don't want to raise them. <laughs> what do I do to get rid of them? Well, this is a tough year um, with grasshoppers because uh, we have not been able to get the bait. It was a family company that put out the bacterial bait that really helped control them, and uh, there's another company going to pick it up. I hope. But right now, there's just there is not a lot to do except wait and see. Now, if the grasshoppers do come out in big numbers, if they are, you know, enough to cause damage, um, there are things like uh, there's some clay products, what they call kaolin clay, which you can get from many hobby shops. Uh, you can mix with water and spray, and it kind of sets up a barrier against them. Uh, they also produce the same product in a in a form, a uh, agricultural form, I would guess, that they call surround S U R R O U N D surround W P. Problem is, it's a little bit pricey. But all I'm doing right now is keeping my bird feeders filled because a limited number of grasshoppers, you know, having plenty of birds around, even the blasted grackles and starlings and things, they'll eat grasshoppers like you wouldn't believe, uh, not to mention the vireos and a lot of other things. But um, I, I, I just hope that it's not going to be one of those years that we just have that uh, plague of the locusts, so to speak, because uh, our best defense, our best early defense, just simply isn't out there right now, and it's this uh, Nosema locustri bait that we put out that controls them. So I'm going to tell you, just you know, do what you can to encourage the birds. Keep an eye out, and if we do start getting troublesome numbers of grasshoppers then we're going to go to some kale and cake clay sprays which will uh keep them off the things we don't want them eating okay the second question is um you had the commercial about home depot and i have a nice <laughs> 500 gallon uh not home depot yeah. tank depot tank depot there you the go five the 500 gallon tank out there that i water my garden with the nitrogen that's in the rainwater how long does that Stay in the in the tank. The, uh, the water in the tank. Mm, that's a great question. I would say, and it, it's not just nitrogen. There are a lot of good things that happen. The nitrogen stays in the rainwater almost indefinitely, but there is an energy imparted that nobody really understands. Raindrops apparently spin a bit when they fall. And this creates some form of energy that plants can sense. It's why rainwater will make certain, oh, things like your schoolhouse lilies bloom when just well water won't. And that extra energy that comes down with the rainfall, that probably dissipates very quickly. But the little bit of ozone, the little bit of nitrogen that the rainwater picks up as it comes down, I think that probably stays in the water, you know, for an extended period of time. But, uh, um, that's not the only good thing about rainwater and this, this, it's whatever we want to call, uh, uh, 
um, the energy that comes from that circular motion. You put some of it back. My business partner, we found, was putting her rainwater or any other kind of water out with a centrifugal pump that spins the water as it goes through the impeller. Uh, it spins the water, and that seemed to put some of this energy back in because it made some of these things that uh, that are fall or that only bloom following the rains, like some of the the two or three genera of uh, rain lilies that we have. But uh, anyway, don't mean to go on and on about a very good question. But uh, the nitrogen stays, but there are other good properties of rainwater that do not last so long. If that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. Okay. That's my two questions. You got my day started right. Well, I'm glad I did. You get out and make it a wonderful weekend, and we will talk again. Appreciate the call, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. right. Donna's up next, and it'll be Paul and James. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. What I need to find out is uh, on you have a recipe for prickly pear, killing it with Mm -hmm. molasses and diesel? No, 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 no. Uh, that's to go after uh, mesquite and uh, we satch and other woody brush. The thing that you do to uh, eliminate prickly pear, it does not come back from the roots, but every tiny little bit of pad that breaks off and falls on the ground will quickly sprout and form a whole new plant. So the secret to prickly pear destruction is simply break it loose from the soil. Don't worry about leaving the roots behind, but you want to you wanna cut it off right at ground level. Uh, if you have access to a tractor with a bucket on it or a skid steer of any sort, Bobcat, of course, is just one brand of those. If you can break it off from the ground, then it's not going to come back in that spot. But what we use the molasses for, we're going to push the cactus into a pile. We're going to douse it with fairly strong molasses because that's going to make those pads rot before they have a chance to sprout and start all over again. So um, the the breaking it free from the ground is the number one step. And then uh, just douse that uh, the material that you break free with pretty strong molasses. I diluted about four to one molasses to water and just wet down the pile with that. Sometimes you need to do it a second time, and this will cause the uh, pads to rot before they can sprout, and that's the best way I know of to get rid of uh, the Opuntia's prickly pear-type cacti. Actually, it works with any type of cactus, but the ones that are so invasive are mainly the uh, the Opuntia's, the ones with the big, flat pads. Okay, okay. And uh, one other question. Uh, rose bushes. Uh, there's some rose bushes that... Uh, all the leaves were eaten off, and there was caterpillars, I guess, on it that mm-hmm. we didn't see. And now they have the cocoons hanging from the uh, stems. Sure. And so should you spray that, or there's nothing you can do now that the caterpillars have uh, formed the cocoons? Well, once they form the cocoons, obviously they're not doing any further damage. They're going to make the moths in this case are going to hatch out and the process is going to start all over again short of going through and picking them out by hand which could be tough and rose bushes i would just tend to concentrate on the roses if your roses need any pruning this would be a good time to do it so that you get the new growth coming out at a 
place that you want it to. And if you happen to be able to prune off some of those cocoons, as it were, uh, that's not a bad thing. Otherwise, just watch for the flush of new growth. I probably would spray a little BT on there just to protect it from the next round of caterpillars. But uh, not a lot you can do uh, in a reasonable fashion to, uh, you know, to the cocoons themselves. Okay, but spray it with some BT? We're not going to do any good at all until the new growth starts. Oh. Then if you spray, because it's a stomach poison, BT, caterpillar takes a bite out of a leaf that has BT on it. Uh, it stops feeding immediately and dies with a few hours, but it has to consume that first mouthful. And, of course, I'm very, very careful with how much BT I use in the environment because we want to protect, you know, the 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 larvae of the monarchs and the fritillaries and the long-winged, zebra long-wings and things. So I'm only going to spray it on a place where it's a problem, but uh, at this point I'm not going to spray at all. Sounds like a good plan. And like I say, it's a great time to do any pruning you need to on the roses, but do it immediately because that new growth is going to start coming out. You know, it's it's already, those little buds are starting to swell. So if you've got any pruning to do, get out and do it. Otherwise, just uh, wait. And like I say, if you start seeing damage, then get your BT on at once. Okie doke. Thank you much. You're sure welcome. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to Paul. Good morning, Paul. Hey, Bob. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you. Um, I've made a lot of mistakes in my garden, and you recommended a book for me. Um, I thought that it would be pretty easy to find on Amazon. There's like 47,000 different gardening books. Could you tell me the name and the author of that book again? Okay. Uh, if it's If you're looking for the book on vegetable gardening, it's called The Texas Organic Vegetable Book. The authors, and I don't know which one's listed first because he contributed to the book pretty much equally, are Howard Garrett and Malcolm Beck. Okay, Howard Garrett and Malcolm Beck. Now, you you will probably find that book at some local nurseries. If you, do you uh, carry it at yours? We normally do. I'd call before you make the trip over because we sell out periodically, but... Uh, most of Howard's and Malcolm's books we keep on the shelf, and uh, that's that's the best book out there written on vegetable gardening. Now, if you happen to come by our place, be sure you get a couple of little free handouts that we have both on vegetables and on tomato gardening. But, uh, yeah, I we normally keep it on the shelves, and uh, it's it's a good book. Okay, and one, one other quick question. Um, I'd asked you about my zucchini plants, my yellow zucchini flowers, and I haven't got any fruits. You said the first few flowerings tend to be the male flowers. Correct. But this has been like, I, I haven't got a single fruit off of my zucchini plant, uh, my, my yellow one. My green one, I'm getting them, but they're, they're just getting short and fat. I mean, okay. I, it doesn't matter what they look like. They still taste delicious in the yep. frying pan. But I haven't gotten any off my yellow one. Well, get out and look at the flowers. Uh, there's a big difference. The, the flowers that have all that yellow pollinia down in the middle, those are the male flowers. A female flower will have what looks like a little miniature squash that's, uh, you know, right at the base of the flower. Uh, if you are not, you know, and, and it can be weather-related, they certainly will start producing female flowers, but... A lot of squash, a lot of cucumbers, a lot of the whole curcurbit family are doing weird things this spring. 
And uh, so get out and look. I suspect that for whatever reason, your plants are just uh, producing an an abnormally large number of male flowers. Now, people like my friend Cappy Lawton would tell you to use them for squash blossom soup. In fact, Cappy's always told me, you bring me any extra flowers you have, and I'll turn them into an incredible soup. So you can do something with the flowers, but nothing but time is going to start giving you good uh, squash production. All right. Well, and if anything, I have never grown peppers as big and as beautiful and as delicious as I have down <laughs> here in Texas. So yep. I, I have found one thing that I am doing well, and my my 18-month-old son loves picking the cherry tomatoes. So there are a couple of things that are thriving in my garden. So we're working towards something. Well, you need to try some bush beans because I know you'll be successful with those. And just let one success build on top of the other. And considering that Father's Day is just right around the corner, in addition to asking for that uh, that Texas Organic Vegetable book, you might ask uh, those who might be be looking for present suggestions. And believe me, dads are hard to shop for, and people are usually very willing to uh, be told what you would like. But there's a second book by the same two authors. It is called The Texas Bug Book, and it's subtitled The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And uh, when you see the pictures on the cover, you'll certainly understand why. By same two authors, Beck and, uh, um, and Garrett. But uh, along with your Texas vegetable book to get you really into the way things are in Texas, get a copy of the Texas bug book as well. Excellent. I appreciate all the help you've given me. And I do have some bush beans growing. Uh, I've harvested a few already, and uh, I hope to see those take off as well. Well, you just uh, you pick them all. They're young and tender, and you call anytime I can help you, Paul. Always good to hear all from right. you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right. Well, James, you went away just when I was really looking forward to talking to you. So uh, call back. I'll move you back to the top of the list if you're able. I know you've got a busy morning going out there. But uh, right now, to take calls in order, it's going to be Mike and Reese and Neil. So we'll just start out with Mike. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, I'm my Mexican key lime. Um, I have approximately... Uh, four or five uh, main trunks, Mm -hmm. Uh, the biggest one about maybe three to four inch diameter, Okay, and it's approximately uh, nine feet high. Big tree, big bush. There's a lot of leaf curling going on. Mm -hmm. Isn't the main reason lack of water for leaf curling? Well, it's, it's not so well. It's at least in part lack of soil moisture, but it's also rapidly varying humidities and uh you know you've probably seen more humid air than you're used to being south and west of us but when these humidities go up and down um that has is almost as much to do with a leaf curl you've probably seen more wind than your usual you know what you usually see so um it's not a bad thing it's not a sign that the trees are unhealthy Okay. But uh, I've spent I've spent more time in the Rio Grande Valley than I have, you know, in uh, in your part of Texas. But uh, um, healthiest, most vigorous trees out there. When we get the kind of weather we've had this spring, you just have a lot of leaf curl. Now, if you told me you were having a lot of yellowing, if you're dropping leaves, if your new growth was deformed or distorted, we might have to look at other things. But you're just looking at weather, and there's not a blasted thing we can do about that. What do you mean by the distorted uh, new growth? Uh, abnormal looking. I mean, uh, just crinkled up and, uh, almost like it was virus, almost like it was the, kind of like the witch's, uh, uh, net that we get on tomatoes every now and then. 
But um, no, I haven't. I haven't seen much of that. But I've sure seen a heck of a lot of leaf curl this spring. Um, there is some brown spots on some of the leaves, uh, older and newer ones, um, and kind of wrinkly. You know, mm-hmm. like if there's some kind of a little bug in there, probably. And, and uh, if that gets to be excessive, uh, spray the new growth with some spinosad soap. The thing about uh, Mexican limes or key limes, uh, same name for two names for the same tree. Uh, the nice thing about that tree or bush is that it can bloom any time, can produce fruit any time. It's not like lemons and grapefruit that produce all their flowers in the spring and all their fruit late summer and fall. Key limes can bloom any time, produce any time. So we don't want to be spraying a lot of spinosad around while we have bees active. But if you're seeing beetles or caterpillars or things that are distorting the new growth, then yeah, a little spinosad soap will take care of that in a hurry. I'm glad you mentioned the soap because I finally did get some a couple of weeks there. Uh, that's, um, that's been my go-to product recently because it works better against the beetle-type things like stink bugs than anything I've ever found, and yet it's also effective on the caterpillars because it has the spinosad in there. I, I, that's just the best combination anybody's come out with in a long time. I think Natural Guard or something like that is the company, which is a division of Fertilome, and I'm not crazy about some of the toxic stuff they still produce, but I sure do like their spinosad soap. How often can I spray that on there? Uh, there's no, it's not, uh, um, it's not going to build up in any way. As we get hotter and brighter, I would definitely avoid spraying in the middle of the afternoon because that soap can be phytotoxic, uh, you know, can burn a little bit in hot, sunny weather, but there's no, it's not like some of these things you can only spray every three weeks. You, I, I literally, during the summer months, when I'm walking through picking tomatoes, I'm picking with one hand and I've got my little hand sprayer, spinosad soap in the other to knock down the stink bugs that I've got on the plants. So would it be best to spray early in the morning or in the evening? You spray when it's convenient for you. Um, I, I would just avoid the hot part of the afternoon, okay. but, uh, I'm wearing a okay. wide brim hat and doing something else if it's, you know, super hot and sunny anyway. All right. Fantastic. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate you. Well, it's always a pleasure visiting with you, Mike. You have a great weekend, and I'm sure we'll talk you again. Too. Thank you, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Reese is up next. Good morning, Reese. Well, good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking the call. Thanks again have, for calling. Yeah. I have just one or two simple questions. I subscribed to your email and Howard Garrett's email as well, you know. Uh-huh. And he posted a very nice video about how to ex- how to do the root exposure. Oh, good. Very Using good. Using a brush, you know. Yeah. So does that mean we shouldn't put any mulch around that area either? Well, mulching out over the root zone is a very good idea. Mulching uh-huh. up against the trunk and on top of the root flare is a bad idea. So don't do it like those crazy people in Houston do where they just pile everything up against the tree. Oh. I, it's a sign of an inability to think and understand. But mulches, you see what mulches do? They cool the soil. They help hold some moisture. They slowly okay. decay. And you don't want that up against the trunk or over the root flare. You want it over as much of the root zone. Mother Nature creates her own mulch by dropping all those leaves out there every fall. So uh, it, it's a very, very good question. Yes, you want to mulch, but you want to mulch outside of the area where you've exposed the root flare. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yesterday I was busy removing all the dirt from the, <laughs> the root system, you know. Oh, lady after I my know. own heart gets out there and does it herself. Yeah, and the other question is, I love Mendevila. You know, I bought mm-hmm. some things, 
Right. But yesterday I noticed in a nursery they have the ones in red, but the name is Diplodenia. Are they both the same? They, you know, technically most of the Diplodenias are smaller flowered. Mandevias typically are a little bit bigger flowered, but um, they are very closely related. The culture is exactly the same. Both of them are vining plants, which you will, and, and quite frankly, they're calling this uh, parasol red, which is the, the you know exact name of the red. I'm not sure that it's not a mandevilla rather than diplodenia, because most of the things that uh, I know truly are diplodenias have a little bit smaller leaf and a little bit smoother leaf. The mandevillas tend to have a little bit bigger leaf and a little bit oh. more corrugation to it so to speak but uh the culture is exactly the same and uh you know plant taxonomists are among the most boring people in the world even worse than actuaries and i can say that because i was married to one for many years but <laughs> we we joke about the old saying is one of them that was so dull that the others noticed that's kind of my impression of most plant taxonomists and so i don't pay a lot of attention to the names i have to know the names so that i can order and get the right plant you know in the nursery business but mandevilla diplodenia uh, they're almost in the trade. They're almost uh, interchangeable. Oh, okay. All right, Bob. Thank you so much for all that information. I love your show. Uh, you're very kind, Reese. Thank you have a wonderful weekend. All right. Let's get right back to the phone lines and uh, let's take them in order. It's going to be Neil and Kevin and Brian and JT. So uh, let's see. Let me hit the right button here. Neil, good morning. How can I help you today? Well, let me tell you, Bob, you probably answered the, my question. You probably answered it a hundred times. but well, you 101 is necessary the then. Okay. Yeah. When you don't have the problem, you don't pay attention. Exactly. Well, I, noticed, I noticed the other day uh, I have some areas of brown, dead Bermuda grass in my yard, and so I think that might be brown patch. Not likely but, in Bermuda. Not likely not in Bermuda. Likely. It is much more likely it could be anything from – doggies visiting that spot or it could be some grub worm damage but uh uh whatever it is you know all bermuda ask out of life is uh lots of fertilizer lots of water and lots of sun and uh, those areas should fill in rapidly and if you want to speed it up just go out and selectively put a little extra organic fertilizer in those areas okay and, and then water it in um, it's your convenience. Organic fertilizers don't burn, so there's no rush. But um, uh, number one, brown patch doesn't really affect Bermuda the way it does St. Augustine. And we're getting into the wrong time of year to have much brown patch showing up. So uh, I, um, I'm less concerned about the cause because I don't think at this point you really need to treat the cause. Now, keep your eyes open. If you start seeing June bugs, get those beneficial nematodes out. But at this point, let's just get that... Bermuda grass filling in that area. The, these are out in the sun, I trust? Yes. It, okay. It, it's, uh, it's just uh, a big old spot of dead, of dead grass. Yeah. And I don't, and uh, so what What should I do about it? I just, I just, a little extra fertilizer, a little extra water. 
your Bermuda should spread into those areas very, very quickly. Now, I don't think you use any of the herbicide. Some of these you know, commercials that you may have heard on uh, the show in the news breaks where they run the national spots, there are some weed killers out there and things, but uh, that's not what you use. I think all you need is a uh, little organic fertilizer, a little water, and a little time. Those uh, spots should fill in quickly and uh, maybe some of the nicest grass in your yard when they do. Okay. All right. Organic fertilizer and water. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's Nature's Creation or Medina or Maestro Grow or Espoma, those are all great brands. Uh, they uh, they do not have to be watered in. They don't really go to work until they get watered in, but it's not like the synthetic stuff that somebody has to be walking behind you with a hose to keep it from burning. That's you got a lot more flexibility with your organic products. Okay. Thank you much. Enjoy your show. I appreciate it, Neil. You have a uh, great weekend, and we'll talk again. Right now, uh, next up is going to be Kevin. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm good. How about you today? I'm doing okay. I've got a quick question. I, you know, all the uh, it's the Vitex tree, right, with the purple spikes, like uh, right, that right. are blooming right now. Uh huh. So pretty. Well, uh, I went to a nursery, uh, not yours, and I, I got one that i thought was that and it turns out it's not it's called vitex fascination have you ever heard of that one are you familiar yeah with that there there are a bunch of different vitex varieties out there and um uh, quite frankly my favorite is one called shoal creek which has the capacity it can rebloom more than once through the summer months and what you've got is an interesting plant but it's just you know it's different like they're 40 different kinds of salvias and 50 different kinds of kufias. And uh, um, okay. next time, call me first, and I'll yeah, try to help you avoid making that mistake. <laughs> yeah. And it's well, The ones I see all day, gosh, they're just blooming so pretty right now. Yeah. And, and this, this is fascinating. It's, a, it's got more of like kind of a purple leaf, and I, right. I do think it's very pretty, but I don't. I just didn't know if it would do well here. Like well, the, it'll the do fine, well. but it'll do fine, and it will actually grow in partial shade, but it's sure not going to give you the number of flowers that the old common uh, lavender chase tree is its common name, but Vitex agnus castus, if you want to be totally botanically correct. But, uh, um, yeah, you, you've just got one of the uh, interesting varieties, but I'll tell you, if you want those spikes of purple flowers, I'd I'd get the old-fashioned Vitex implanted as well. If you can find it, like say this variety called Shoal Creek is one that uh-huh. will rebloom. Not you're, you're always going to have your heaviest show of flowers in the spring on those things, but uh, Shoal Creek will give you some extra flowers a time or two during the summer that your old-fashioned one's not going to. Oh wow! Okay, all right. Well, uh, yeah, I think I might. I think I might. I haven't planted it yet. I might ah. take it back. <laughs> <laughs> if they let me. I don't know. Well, if you're able to do that, that's fine. But like I say, the the one thing about the fascination, and there's still another one they call Beach Vitex, which is more closely related to the fascination. It's uh, it'll tolerate a little bit more shade, but uh, and it's also going to get to make a little more compact plant. The thing about the old fashioned uh, Agnes Castus uh, Vitex is it gets it's big it's uh oh gosh the you know 
one of them in my I've got one of them in my yard proper and two of them over in an area where we used to have a big greenhouse that have just grown wild without any help from me for the past 15 years but those mm-hmm. things easily will make a uh, a big bush that's 15 20 feet tall and 15 feet wide so be sure you've got plenty of room you can trim them a bit to keep the size a little more under control but they're still going to they're still going to take up a nice big space in your yard Oh yeah, well maybe maybe I uh, I lucked into something here because this it, it's near the house. I mean it's out some from it, and I'm fully prepared to stay on top of mm-hmm. you know keeping it off of my roof and stuff. But uh, well, shoot, maybe I will. Okay, well, I got <laughs> to do. I, I so I've armed you with more knowledge, but I haven't told you what to do. So uh, yeah, as well, as at least I know it'll it'll grow and and not you know be something that doesn't do well here. I'm always worried about that, so that's good. Right. Okay. Well, thanks, Bob. I appreciate your help as always. As always, it's a pleasure talking. You have a great weekend, Kevin. Thanks for the call. Take care. Thanks. Uh Bye-bye. All right. Let's get back to gardening. And uh, it's going to be Brian and then JT. And uh, Brian, you're up first. Good morning, sir. Well, good morning, sir. I hope you're having a good Saturday morning. Oh, I just haven't. I've got a a guy on the behind the glass, so to speak, that's... uh, an interesting guy to visit with during the unusual, well, I, I shouldn't complain about long commercial breaks, but, uh, yeah, Saturday mornings are fun, and uh, we, we just have a good time. I hope you're hoping your day's off to a good start. Actually, my week has improved immensely since I talked to you last Saturday. I wanted to give you a chigger update. Okay, tell me. Okay, uh, I tried lavender. Mm-hmm. I tried uh, quarter zone 1% cream. I tried a couple other different things, and the thing that worked the best was the witch hazel. Okay. Um, It stopped the itching on my legs for up to eight hours at a time. Um, Nothing else would do anything more than an hour or two of relief. Mm -hmm. If you remember last week we talked, and I was trying to find something to... Because I I really got into a mess of them. I probably got 50 or 60 bites on each leg between my knee and my ankles. Well, as I told you last week, my grandmother, her her remedy was witch hazel, and I found the same thing. I have done some additional research this week. I'm glad you called so that I can pass it along. Um, There apparently is a product that I wasn't familiar with called, I think it's called Chigger Rid. And uh, at one time, you could apparently get it in most of the, you know, box store pharmacies and things. But it's uh, something that uh, you just dab a little bit directly on the bite, and it kills the chigger underneath. And um, a friend of mine up in the Hill Country just absolutely swears by it. He told me he'd ordered me a bit of it, uh, just a little bottle of it, so... Um, I, the, the witch hazel, I think is going to be real good for you, but if you see this, uh, chigger rid, it might be investing in because John was telling me that, uh, this has been his go-to solution and it's always good to have an alternative if one doesn't work a hundred percent of the time. Right. My wife actually had some of that stuff, uh-huh. but it was kind of out of date. It had yeah. August of 07 on expiration on the thing. <laughs> Call that, that more around. than just a little out of date. <laughs> yeah. And this this stuff comes in a small, uh, well, I used to call them a little facial tin, mm-hmm. but it's a little plastic jar, and you, yeah. and it, it's a 
it's a, a thick compound that yep. you dab in your finger and then wipe on. It's yep. not a liquid per se. Right. And it's, and it's just like, like a wax or a paste. Yeah. Other people, you know, have used everything from nail polish. People go to great extremes when they suffer as much as you and I do. But uh, I, I think the witch hazel is going to be your, your solution 99% of the time. So I'm sure glad it worked for you. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess something in my chemistry of my body has changed because I used to. I never, when I was a kid, I got ate up by chiggers up in Indiana, and then mm-hmm. I went for years and years and never really had any bites, or maybe I just never got into them. But this spring, boy, I'll tell you what, out there in that grass of that home we were repainting, I've just got tore up with them. Well, they love the moist, uh, all the moisture we've had, the combination of moderate temperatures, high moisture levels. Uh, chiggers have been worse this year than i've seen in in quite some time well i just hope your listeners uh can use that information i just wanted to call and give you a quick update well brian i appreciate it and uh you know you'll still buy your witch hazel from wherever but uh our garrett has made me aware that witch hazel is really a, a not a bad shrub and one of our prettiest fall colors sadly there's not a lot of it available on the market down here but uh if we ever find a good source on it, uh, I'll let you know, and it might be a fun thing just to have in your yard as well. Yeah, it sure would. This stuff that I bought actually from one of the the little uh, community mini box stores, not mm-hmm. to mention names, but uh, all these places, all your dollar stores seem to carry it, and it's about a dollar a bottle, and it's eighty six percent witch hazel, fourteen percent rubbing alcohol, mm-hmm. which is just the solvent and, uh, in there, but it's. Yeah, it's yeah, and it's so and I, cooling. I mean, it just feels good on yeah. the skin. It and was, I found that when I opened it up, I didn't peel the foil seal back. Mm-hmm. I just took a toothpick and poked like two holes in it. Uh huh. And I just squirted it on my leg and then rub it all over. Yeah. Um, that way, it it I really poured it on, you know, but not drenched it with a bottle. But it seemed to work real well that way. And golly, talk about relief, man! I, <laughs> well, wow. I'll. I'll tell you, my my grandmother was a very, very intelligent lady, and uh, she actually met my grandfather in World War One. He drove an ammunition t- truck in France, and she was in the Army Nurse Corps. But anyway, she was a smart lady, and, and she first, you know, showed me all the different things. She's with Hazel on sunburn, a lot of different places where he just needed to cool down the skin as well as yeah. getting a little itch relief, and uh, I don't know of any negatives to it, so... Uh, uh, keep exploring. Let me know if you find out other good things about it, and I always look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, sir. Have a great day. You do the same, Brian. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, let's finish up the hour with JT. Good morning, JT. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, I sir. A Myers lemon in a in a pot in the sun that had uh, a lot of lemons on it last season, and uh, we were gone for a few days, and I came back, and just about every leaf on the thing was gone, just disappeared. It, Made it through the winter literally with about three leaves on it. Okay. Uh, I, I thought maybe they would come out, put it out in the sun. I had it inside just to protect it from the cold. But anyway, right. Uh, the limbs are all green and pliable. They look good. And oh, probably three weeks ago or so, the few little leaves tried to come out and they got beat off by the rain that came. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, there's literally like two leaves on that plant. It's about four feet high, two feet wide. Okay. Uh, is there anything I can do with that? Well, leave the branches that have the leaves on because this tree needs leaves on it i mean that's where it absorbs its uh, energy from the sun green bark will carry on some photosynthesis but 
if you've got long limbs that just don't seem to want to break and produce leaves, cut them back by about a third. Just take your sharp pruning shears. And what this does is it concentrates this hormone, this auxin, that is moving up through the stem uh, at the cut point. And when it starts concentrating, it starts breaking little uh, dormant, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think, uh, there's, there's a term for those little buds that you can't even see, but I've seen a lot of times when a plant just for whatever reason, didn't really have the strength that needed to start leafing out. You prune it back a bit like that. And all of a sudden it starts putting on new foliage like mad. So I combine that with the uh, good liquid fertilizer and, uh, and I sure would like to see more leaves coming out on that tree. And I think that's, those are Two things you could do that would uh, really encourage that, the fertilizing and the cutting back. But like I say, any any limb that has leaves started on it, uh, leave those alone. We don't want to set them back any further than necessary. Okay, but the others, cut, cut them back by about a third? Yeah, by about a third. Very good. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Thanks well, sir. just one more thing on your lemon. Yeah. Do look at the base. Be sure that, uh, you know, that, that root flare as it was. And, and what you're actually looking at, of course, is the root stock, not at the Myers lemon. But that graft point's probably going to be three or four inches above ground level. But being buried too deeply will eventually kill a plant. And that's, that's one thing I always worry a little bit about. If something's not as vigorous, if something's not sprouting out, the way I wish it was, then um, I always worry about the root flare being covered. So check that out while you're working with that tree. I did that uh, I don't know, last year, maybe a year before. Okay. I got it at your place, and the, uh, it's got a big knot just uh, above ground level. Yeah, that's the graft uh, point. But uh, uh, no, yeah, the the the, uh, the graft point is about six inches up off the pot. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah, or well, maybe five inches. And it's Pretty pretty good distance up there to it. Yeah, well, as long as those big roots are coming out right at ground level, but uh, yeah, fertilize water, plenty of sun, and I I think the pruning back is gonna gonna be the best thing you can do to get it refoliaged because uh, gotta have the gotta have the leaves to make good lemons, and that's why we grow those things. Yep, I was getting worried. All right, thanks a lot, Bob. Take care. Have a great weekend. You do the same, sir. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. All right, it is eight minutes after eight o'clock on a kind of a muggy Saturday morning, but it is June, it is summertime, and it is time to say good morning to the Dirt Doctor. Good morning, Howard. How is everybody? Everybody is, um, so far as I know, just really smiling. If you weren't under a hailstorm or, you know, a funnel cloud, golly, I hear North Texas really got hammered yesterday. Canton had like three tornadoes and Y'all have y'all have really experienced some wild weather, but other other than that, I think life's pretty good right now. Yeah, the weather's been uh, interesting. We had another really nice rain. We had anything rough here. We just continue to get rain, and the plants continue to grow. I've got something new going on. In fact, I was just looking to see if I had written a column about it before. It seems like in the back of my mind, I. I think I've covered it, but I need to do an update on it because there's a, a new uh, situation with Chinese pistachio trees. I don't know if y'all are noticing it down there, but they're coming up uh, as invasive weeds all over the place. It is the most, in my front yard, it's the most common weed out there. Really? It's coming up everywhere. It's unbelievable. And I don't know if it had to do with the... Uh, 
uh, you know, the nice moisture and the rains and, and uh, just making the conditions better or what the deal is. I had one volunteer on the side of my house. It's actually in the neighbor's yard. And I let it go because it kind of filled in a spot uh, to block a, a view. I normally knock them out, but I'd been putting off and putting off, uh, taking out some of the little woody weeds that mm-hmm. went up in the Persian ivy out front <laughs> for some time. Yeah. And I started taking them out, and a little little red oaks coming up here and there, and there's a bunch of the uh, Chinese uh, flutinia coming up, and I'm going to transplant some of those and take some of those to the office. But I started noticing the uh, little pistachio trees in a couple of places. I mean, there's just a solid mass of them. Wow. So popping all those out. But people need to kind of take a, you know, keep an eye on that, especially if, you, if folks that are trying to do some native uh, landscaping and get the wildflowers and the native plants going, that thing can be, it's a pretty plant, but it can really, really become invasive. Well, it's, uh, I, you know, we don't have that many Chinese pistache down here. Um, they just, Steve George, of course, they're a good old promoter of China, of uh, red tip photinias and several other things that didn't work out so well. Um, I, he promoted them, but I, it may have been that the growers just weren't producing a real good quality, but a lot of people got discouraged with them and took them out. But, uh, I'll tell you what my take on a lot of this is, and that is that we had an unusual thing late last summer in that we had really good rains, uh, early September, about the time the seed was really developing and ripening in a large number of trees and then we had a very wet spring, so I think we started out with a with a better, bigger, more viable seed. And uh, um, you you mentioned some of the ones that that I've seen uh, the uh, Chinese photinia, the uh, well, just a lot of different trees. Uh, the bur oaks produced an exceptional number of big, very fertile acorns this year, and uh, red oaks as well. And um, I think it was just kind of a perfect storm situation as far as developing a large number of very viable seed unfortunately i think that's also the case in you know some of our native juniper and some of the things we just as soon not see so much of but uh um (laughs) people better beware because right now it's a lot easier to get them up either to eliminate them or replant them than it's going to be a year from now well it might surprise you how many might be there. There's probably more in Dallas than, mm-hmm. than other cities, and guess who's to blame for that? I used to put them on every plan I designed. Uh-huh. I thought it was great, and the reason it got started, there was one here at the A&M uh, place out on Renner Road. There uh-huh. was one there that uh, some Boyd and Heydrich, I think, of landscape architecture firm that was around a long time before I got started, and the story was that they ran into to the Chinese pistache somewhere uh-huh. and, and talked A&M into planting one, and the largest one that I knew of was there at the, the A&M place in Renner, and it was pretty good size. It was probably had a trunk of 18 inches or something like that, mm-hmm. nice full top. Well... After I learned what the thing was, I started looking for it. Lo and behold, I ran into one 
in Highland Park, down on just off of uh, Turtle Creek. Uh-huh. I think on uh, it's at the corner of Armstrong and Turtle Creek, and it's got a trunk diameter of well over three feet. It's oh wow! Gigantic. I've never seen one that big. Yeah, it's the one. I think uh, there's a picture of it in my Plants in the Metroplex, maybe in some of the other books uh, I did as well, and doing beautifully. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it's a male because I've never noticed any. Uh, fruit on it or anything but that because of the grandeur of that plant i started designing them in on every uh, project and uh, uh, at that point probably most of them if not all of them we were dealing with were males Uh so we weren't seeing that that uh, seed problem but anyway keep an eye out out there one of the trick one of the things that can fool you about it a little bit when it starts coming up is it looks very very similar to uh, soapberry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, pretty, pretty good native uh, plant. It's got a few problems. It doesn't live for a huge, huge long time. But the foliage looks very uh, similar. And a lot of times you can it can get to a size before you realize what it is. <laughs> You've got a pretty good job of uh, taking the stuff out. Well, one of the things about pistache, too, is uh, it, it's just one of our beautiful fall color trees. That's That alone makes it... Uh, just the delight to see in a lot of landscapes because it has that brilliant New England color. Most falls, at least it does down here, and that's we just don't have a lot of things that, that give us that kind of fall color. Well, that's how I, I spotted it down there in, in Highland Park, and uh, that is exactly why I was you know, so in love with it there for a, uh, a while, but... It's uh, it's got a problem. It's got a pretty big problem, actually. Well, it's uh, again, if you can encourage people to plant the male trees, uh, and if you have them out in the sun where they can make uh, that real stately tree, they they're a real pretty thing. But uh, uh, like so many of these trees that that do have separate male and female trees, you know, and that's a a good question. I know you originally purchased your ginkgo as a male tree. And some years down the road, it started producing fruit like mad. And uh, I've heard varying opinions as to whether trees are actually able to switch sex, so to speak, as they uh, as they mature. What's your take on it? Well, <clears throat> we've written about it and talked about it quite a bit. There's research going back uh, to the early 1900s on it, uh, showing that it, it is possible. Yeah. And <clears throat> when I... Uh, when I noticed it on my ginkgo, it's when I really started doing some research on it. Most of the research shows that, that the trees that, that cha- can change sex will only change part of the top of the tree. You know, oh, that's interesting. Certain limbs. Mine, mine, the whole thing is female, so it, it may be that you know the contractor that planted it, I had a, that was part of a, a, a planting when I had an actual contractor do the work, and he may... It was labeled as a, as a male, but it may have just been a female from the beginning. I don't have any way to know that. <laughs> but it uh, they can definitely change, and we know that other plants can change sex. Papayas are the most uh, famous for it, I guess. But the uh, the ginkgo can definitely change, and there's research backing it up. Well, it'll be interesting to see if that's. Uh... Uh, the case on the pistache, but uh, quite obviously the size of some of these huge male trees around, it's certainly not common in that tree if it does occur at all. 
Yeah, I don't see any uh, evidence of that, but we'll keep an eye on it. I think people are going to have to stop playing. I mean, it's listed on both the uh, state of Texas and the uh, national invasive species list. So probably at some point there's going to be some restriction of people even growing it. No, that's that's interesting. Well, that's yeah, that that's uh, <laughs> one of those unusual things that that crops up and. Uh, of course, I guess I'd rather see that than hackberries. That's that's an, the problem that I have in my yard is that, uh, you know, 100 years ago, people cut down oak trees to plant hackberries because that was the wonderful new tree out of China. And my gosh, what a mistake that was. And, and those blasted things are, are hard to eliminate. Yeah, it's a very common weed uh, in most projects, including my own. And uh, <laughs> the other one that's even worse is the uh, Carolina snail seed. That's without question. And I'm starting to get more and more calls about it. I don't know why it's proliferating. It seems to be. But it's uh, at, at our office, we've got a, just 10 jillion plants. They may all be connected to the same uh, underground system. I don't oh, know. Wow. It even comes up out in the, uh, out in the turf. I tell you another thing. Speaking of my office, that, that's uh, interesting. That's going on, and it pro- this probably had to do with all the moisture and the cool. And then when now we've had this kind of flash of, of some warm weather. <clears throat> my elephant garlic has um, just um, done a, uh, a speedy uh, dash into being mature. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, we'll see it go. Uh, fairly slow, you know, the tips of the leaves will start to get brown and it kind of slowly go down, downhill. Well, after the, uh, not this last rain, but the one before and the sun came out, the flowers came out and really started maturing quickly. I cut them off yesterday and brought them in uh, because they had gone total full maturity. And by, by the way, there's black seed in it this time too that probably had something to do with the moisture well but the other thing that caught my eye was i started looking around at all of it and all of it is volunteer i didn't plant any new garlic <laughs> this year and it's right up all over it. yeah <clears throat> but it all went downhill just overnight mm-hmm. uh, quite a few of the smaller ones the entire uh, plant all the foliage has turned uh, brown already, so I'm gonna, I'm going to be harvesting it all today. So people might want to take a look at their uh, garlic. It's it's going faster into uh, a full maturity than I've ever seen. And what happens is those bulbs, uh, when you uh, t- take them out of the ground, they'll still be fine to eat and everything. Sure. But if they have started separating, which they'll do, mm-hmm. if you leave them in the ground too long. Their, their uh, shelf life will be reduced by quite a bit. You know, in onions, we find if they have bloomed that the onions don't keep as well. I've not ever noticed that to be the case with garlic. Have you have you found anything there, or just if you uh, no, doesn't matter? I'm saying, if you let them go too long, they no. won't last very very long at all. All my seed heads on my elephant garlic are five feet tall. It's they're the tallest that I've ever seen. They're literally I'm they're at eye height um, uh, this year, and normally they stop at about three feet tall, but they're just monstrous this year, and that probably has to do with the moisture as well. I would imagine so. Or is that from some of the uh, seed from my garden, from my plants? I think it was originally. I'm like you; it's come up all over my garden, and at first yeah, I thought, oh, that's everything else. yeah. I thought that's cute. I'll leave it alone. And now I'm saying, my gosh, I've uh, 
I've sure got it coming up places I never intended for it to come up, but it's but it's a good thing to have in the garden. I don't, you know, it's hard to have too much garlic. Well, you can have bigger bulbs if you cut those things off as as soon as they first start farming, and it's the smartest thing to do. But I'm always lazy or, or I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of eager to have the flowers. Like you know, I cut several and brought them home and stuck them in a vase. And you don't, and when you do that, you don't need to put any water in there at all. They they last. Uh, with they keep their color pretty long uh, without any water, and they then harden off and turn into a kind of a oh, kind of a nice golden color. Yeah, that lasts forever. You know, I did not it's realize dry, that right. that they would retain the color. Uh, if you put them in dry, that's that's very good to know because they make a wonderful dry flower. I just uh, they're they're just not many negatives to that plant other than its tendency to to spread more widely. But uh, they're pretty easy to to remove with a grubbing hoe if they if they get too invasive. But oh, yeah, uh, no yeah. I just let them come up. The only ones that I have that are a problem are the ones coming up in the walkways, <laughs> and they end up getting smashed anyway. But uh, I use it a lot. I use it from breakfast and my scrambled eggs all the way through anything uh, we cook and the flavor is is very very good well it's uh it i think that there's no question about the health benefit of most all of the you know true garlics out there and i think the the elephant garlic is a little bit milder flavor and you know i just uh i, I recall so much traveling through parts of california where they serve it you know as a baked item that's just absolutely delicious i i'm i'm a fan of garlic and uh and freely admit that and i think it's fun it's uh one of the few insect problems that we're seeing uh quite a lot of this spring or thrips on a number of things and i have not found anything better than a liquid garlic spray to control thrips uh what about you yeah i think that's the best solution there is i think garlic's good for all kinds of things if you have just minor aphid problems or some things that are pretty significant like the striped cucumber beetle or the spotted cucumber beetle any of the long you know the uh, uh what's the uh, long-legged bug the uh, leaf-footed bug yeah. sometimes is quite a problem any of those hard to control ones i think that the uh, garlic pepper tea or just garlic by itself if you don't want to go to the trouble of making the mixture i think the mix is probably more powerful than just garlic by itself i think you're exactly right yeah but and garlic's a good i call it more of a fungus or a fungus preventer than a cure and uh it was elaine ingham that explained that at one point that said that garlic stimulates so many beneficial fungi that on when you've used it as a foliar spray, it's simply, even though you can't see it, there's so many single-cell beneficial fungi on the leaves of the plant that there simply is no place for the uh, pathogenic fungus, you know, to get started. So I recommend it as, as a fungus preventer as well as, uh, you know, being good for insect control and, and just a good general thing. Uh, yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I- I wish somebody would put a uh, garlic pepper tea on the market. We used to have one, mm-hmm. and I think that the uh, geniuses that come out and uh, you know inspect the stores and everything uh, threw a fit about it not being labeled properly. You know, like it's really oh. a dangerous 
kind of a product to be there. I, I think that's what happened to it. And I, I don't know of a commercial garlic pepper tea that's out there right now. Do you? I don't either. We we get two garlic products, uh, both from garlic research labs that are sold. One of them's called uh, Mosquito Barrier, and the other is just called Garlic Barrier. And I'm pretty sure that you could probably make your own garlic pepper tea, but I'm I'm not aware of that combination uh, in any commercial product at this time. Oh yeah, we recommend it all the time. That's that's the first formula I ever came up with and put on the website and the whole deal. And a lot of people give me uh, uh, feedback on it. It could be added. Uh, you could increase the amount of it in uh, in garret juice. I'm sure without causing any problems too. That's not one of the things we talk about real often, but that's uh, one of those things that I think can be a good addition. Um, you know, for a lot of different reasons. I think. Just about any of the organic mixtures uh, or liquids can be mixed together with one exception. I probably would not put hydrogen peroxide in with something that you are using to really stimulate biological mm-hmm. activity. You know, if you're using the garret juice that has the mycorrhizae and the bacteria, right. and putting hydrogen peroxide in with it probably would hurt the uh, beneficial microbes. And that might be the same with the garlic. The hydrogen peroxide, if, if it's going to be used with a garret juice mixture, probably ought to just be the, the base uh, garret juice yeah. mixture. Yeah, yeah, The other interesting thing that's going on, somebody sent me a picture. In fact, it may have been one of the listeners that uh, you uh, that we have here sent me a photograph. He put in a, a feeder. He had a feeder that he was using on his ranch mm-hmm. that kept having uh, mud daubers build inside it and be kind of a mess and he painted it paint blue and he's uh-huh. these pictures that it's working great so far no more uh wasps it may it may have more uses than we realize it's uh yeah it's it's one of the things that's on my long project list the uh the wooden decking on uh, the balcony on my home rotted out after 100 years can you imagine and uh, i've just gotten it replaced with uh, some of this eco vantage wood but i've got to get up and paint the underside of the eaves haven't seen as much activity but there's a lot of activity that is just slower this spring and i think it's because the weather's been a little bit cooler but i'm not seeing nearly as many paper wasps as we usually see nesting by this time and uh I was going to ask you, if y'all are seeing up in Dallas, we haven't seen much in the way of June bugs yet. Uh, we're starting to have some of those evening locusts that make so much noise show up, but uh, not many June bugs at this point. And um, uh, oh, what was the other thing I was going to say, that we, we've not seen a lot of grasshoppers yet. And, uh, I haven't seen many pests at all. I, saw, I was looking at some aphids yesterday, and there were uh, uh, ants up on it, kind mm-hmm. of feeding off of their... Uh, honeydew on some of the new growth on uh, on some grapes in the garden and i think that's just a temporary stress from the weather change you know you're going to have a little bit of that sure. pop sure. up here and there and you'll see the ladybugs cleaning it cleaning that up in most cases that's what i was going to say aphids in most cases i don't do anything because yeah. you just leave them alone for a little while and they're just a magnet to bring in all the beneficials from the lace wings to the aphids to the praying mantids and uh um, I, I kind of enjoy seeing a few aphids show up in the garden because of all the all the life that shows up to eat them. One other quick thing, I've, uh, 
got these little uh, anecdotal experiments going on. I had the Chinese, I mean the uh, Persian ironwood at the office. I think I told you that I had uh, not been watching it and it had silted mm-hmm. in and ended up getting too deep in the soil and all the new growth this spring was chlorotic. I, I just took real quickly, just exposed the flare and I haven't even done the rest of the sick tree treatment yet. And the new foliage, since I did the, the Soil pulling back is perfectly clean and healthy looking. Oh, that's fantastic! It, it's just incredible how 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 it works. Well, I uh, um, uh, that brings uh, to mind, I, and I need to email you because I know where you're going to use things in print. Email is better than just texting pictures to you. But I had a friend that uh, uh, told me he had a uh, one of the big tooth maples. At his on one of his commercial properties that just was looking really bad, and I stopped by to take a look at it. And as usual, the root flare was buried too deeply. But apparently, that's one of the trees that really shows the damage more quickly because the bark down on the lower part of the trunk was actually peeling off. The tree was dead. It was covered with brown leaves, and and uh-huh. as they frequently do. Um, you know, it just in effect died all at once, but the bark was just literally flaking off and the wood was given the, the xylem underneath it was literally getting a little spongy. And so I took a couple of pictures to show that, you know, being buried too deeply can ultimately kill trees. And I not really thought about it, but just in looking at this one, I'm thinking that maybe the maples may be a little bit more susceptible to uh damage uh, showing up more quickly when it's buried so got a couple of what i hope are fairly good shots where i kind of pull the pull the dirt back away and actually you can see how everything is just rotten underneath it and just i think that'll be a good thing to add to uh this is what happens ultimately it may be years down the road on some trees but this is what it can lead to yeah it'd be great i look forward to getting that and you're right i think the maples i think any uh thin barked tree is probably more susceptible to this plus any drought tolerant tree any xeric mm-hmm. tree which big tooth maple is uh will be more susceptible uh, to it as well it's uh i, I tell you what people are going to this is going to be a, a very costly thing that's going to start happening here in the near future these maples that people have planted that are the autumn blaze right, and the right. autumn glory and all those things and they've been planted by the jillions across texas yeah those things one they're they've got a built-in weakness to begin with and then secondly they're getting planted all too deep in the ground so you're going to see those things having all kinds of problems well and throw in throw in above average moisture and that's yeah. going to exacerbate the problem even more absolutely. i think absolutely well, I tell you, we don't really have time to get into it today, but an interesting question that maybe we can talk next week or sometime soon. Uh, we know how antimicrobial peat moss is and uh, what a great preservative it makes it, but somebody was asking me exactly what makes it antimicrobial. How does it reduce the number of bacteria and fungi, and what is what is the the mode on that? What is it about peat moss that is antibacterial? And I kind of scratched my head, and I said I don't really know exactly how that works, but I'll take it up with Howard, and we'll discuss it sometime soon. Yeah, we'll talk about it more, but it's probably partly due to the fact it's anaerobic. Yeah. And there's just a lack of air in it, and that, that's probably part of it. But that'd be a good one to do a little more research and do a uh, do a 
call them on or something too. Oh, there's so many things out there. That's it's one thing we never run out of things to talk about or things for you to write about. So you keep up all of your good work and uh give all of your other family members, two legged and four legged, a little bit of special attention and uh as always just uh such pleasure and we thank you so much for spending a little bit of your Saturday with us. It was fun as always. Everybody check out dirtdoctor.com. If you see anything missing or you want added, let me know. And keep Torque in mind when you want to make a good contribution to a good nonprofit, uh, tax deductible contribution. Torque is certainly uh, ready to assist you. Bob, see you next week. Thanks, Look, man. Thank you, Howard. We'll talk again soon. All right, let's get back to the phone lines. It is going to be uh, George, David, and Brian in that order. George is up first. Good morning, George. Hi, Bob. Uh, I'm new to organic uh, gardening, so I may have a question or two here. That's what I'm here for. Sounds Okay. I've heard you mention about the use of molasses. Yes. Um, what exactly does the, is it a nutritional value to the, uh, plants, or uh, I've got a whole Zen sprayer that mm-hmm. I'd like uh, to apply it with. And does that dilute easily in water? I've never used molasses before, uh, or I just want to avoid it from <laughs> sticking up the, the jets on my hose-in sprayer. Sure, and that is an excellent question. And uh, to answer your second question first, uh, molasses can vary in how thick it is. I tend to use it when I'm using it in a hose-in sprayer uh, rather than just putting the full concentrate in there and then setting the dial for one tablespoon per gallon because sometimes, especially in cooler weather, it can it can clog. I'll go ahead and dilute it like three parts water to one part molasses, and that thins it out to where it goes through the sprayer very easily. And then I set the sprayer on four tablespoons per gallon. So the net result is I'm getting a gallon a tablespoon per or a tablespoon of molasses per gallon of spray. Right. And so that that makes makes it very very easy to use in a pump-up sprayer or a hose-in sprayer either one but now as to what it does it stimulates microbial activity uh bacteria are i mean they're they're teenagers they're kids that just live on sugar and the more sugar they go the the more sugar they get the faster they grow the faster they reproduce the more biological activity there is out there and the great majority of the microbes in our soils, and we have up to 20,000 different species of bacteria, up to 10,000 different species of beneficial fungi, the bacteria especially just really explode uh, when, you know, in the presence of sugar. So where we're trying to stimulate good biological activity in the soil, molasses is excellent. Where we're trying to stimulate the bacteria that cause decomposition, that's why we spray it or pour it over things like cactus that we're trying to get rid of that's been broken loose from the soil. And um, it, then it just simply causes it to rot so quickly it doesn't have any sprout, any time to sprout and grow. We're, of course, using it much more concentrated there. Uh, in the case of using it to get rid of nutsedge, uh, we, again, mix it a little bit stronger, and it creates so much microbial activity that your nutsedge simply can't tolerate it, and it just slowly rots away because uh, nutsedge prefers a you know a much 
uh, less rich soil, so to speak, for it to grow in. So molasses does a lot of different things which are, are good, and we use it for a lot of different things. But the main benefit that it provides is just a strong increase in microbial activity. We don't use very much of it when we're making compost tea because if we overdo it, uh, the bacteria simply reproduce so fast, the oxygen can't, can't keep up with it, and uh, that can be a negative thing. But just as a general purpose additive, uh, biological activity is the main thing you're getting from it. Now, if you're using the blackstrap molasses or some of these others, it does have quite a few micronutrients in it. Blackstrap has extra sulfur uh, above and beyond what ordinary molasses does. But it does bring some micronutrient to the table, but it's it's more of a microbial stimulant than anything else is what we're using it for. Make sense? Okay, now, you mentioned blackstrap. Is that is that a store item? Like, yeah, that's like- that's a grocery store item. Um, okay. If you're looking for quantities, uh, you'll more likely want agricultural molasses. What you want to be sure now, some people that put it out in lick feeders and things like that, they put it some sort of. Uh, antifungal agent in it to cut down on microbial activity and you don't want that but if just a a general agricultural molasses is going to be very uh very cost efficient as well as uh very good for the soils okay and how often would you apply this uh... i would say you could do it up to once a month i think that uh um a lot of uh, a lot of hay growers are finding that this is better than a lot of fertilizers. They apply it if they're growing, say, coastal uh, as a hay crop. Every time they cut their field, they go back and hit it with molasses afterwards. In your yard, uh, two, three times a year, I think, is great, but you could use it up to once a month and still, you know, without seeing a law of diminishing return sort of thing set in. It just, uh, if you're dealing with really hard soil, that's a time you'd want to use it a little bit more often because it's your microbes that produce a, uh, you know, a permanent softening of the soil. But in a healthy yard that you just want to keep healthy, two or three times a year is all I'd really worry about. Okay, Bob. Sure appreciate it. Thanks. Well, great question, and uh, I appreciate the call. Thank you, George. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's see here. Next up is David. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Can we get can we get back to the unpleasant subject of chiggers? Uh, absolutely. I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about them, and the most effective uh, remedy I found is uh, the uh, Iva Rest, the one that's used for poison ivy. Also, okay. Uh huh. And uh, there is a way to possibly prevent it for most people, and that is to use a product. Called, I got a permethrin. Yeah, that's that's kind of nasty stuff, though. It's yeah. uh, if it's good enough for our troops over in the sandbox, it's good enough for me. And a lot of hikers and people use it and just soak the clothes in it, let it line dry. And I'm out here right now playing in the in in the tall grass, and I have yet to get get one on me. And well, I am a natural magnet. For yeah, it, so. uh, but that's the same government that's putting DEET. Uh, into the yeah. uniforms, and, and that stuff is a known neurotoxin that's a real problem causer. So, uh, you know, sometimes I think it's true. One of the biggest lies told is, hi, I'm from the government, and we're here to help you. So <laughs> just because the government's using it does not. And, I mean, same thing. Every ad you hear about mosquitoes is soak yourself in DEET, 
and uh, there's becoming a stronger and stronger link between autism and perhaps ADHD and uh, neurotoxins like DEET. So I'm I'm not I I find that uh, you know using a cedar oil product, uh, using a lemon eucalyptus product, I rub that on my ankles. When I was growing up, my grandmother made us put sulfur in our socks when we went down to my grandfather's farm uh, for fishing and shooting and things like that, and we never got chiggers. And uh, uh, as long as I remember to apply some of the uh, non-DEET uh, repellents uh, to my skin, I I don't ever get a chigger, um, you know, and, and if you're wanting to eliminate them from an area, the cedar oil does a very, very good job of it, so... Yeah, it's uh chiggers are are a very unpleasant business, but just for my choice, um I I I like some natural things better than I like the permethrins. Yeah, uh, agreed. Agreed. I just thought I'd throw that out there, but again, the uh Ivaris, that's the one that works for me. I've tried the uh Chigger X times 2 mm-hmm. and it it did pretty good. But well, the uh, Ivaris actually knocks out the itching. In fact, I had one sneak up on me yesterday, and wow. they always show up in the morning. Uh-huh. And five minutes after I put it on, itching's gone. Oh, that's good to know. That's as good to know. As often stated, though, it doesn't work. Things don't always work the same for everybody. Yeah, everybody's body chemistry is a little different, and I still think uh, you know a nice vigorous shower after you've been out out in that grass is one of the best things because it takes them. You know how they love to get under tight spots, right around under you know around the cuff of your your socks if they're tight, or around your waist and uh, uh, the ladies some of their tighter fitting garments. That's where. That's where the itch is worst, and where they always seem to show up. So uh, I uh, there there's it, I'm I'm glad to know that uh, that you found a product that works real well for you. But again, prevention is uh, is the best way to go. But then if you have to cure that, the witch hazel sure seems to work well. Okay, sir. Thank you much. You keep up the good work. You do likewise, David. I sure appreciate it. All Thank right. you, sir. Goodbye. Bye. Ah, always fun. Let's get back and finish up phone calls uh, with Brian. Good morning, Brian. Uh, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. First, I want to say how much I appreciate all that you do for us gardeners. Well, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you listening, and even more, I appreciate you calling. Yes, sir. I have a question about my plum trees. Okay. I've got a Burbank plum and a Santa Rosa. Okay. They're about a year and a half, maybe two years old. Uh-huh. I've got this resin thing they're like little balls that's coming out of the bark that the right. uh, stem okay can you tell me what those things are in most cases on plums uh it's actually a a little bacterial gall that gets underneath there now on an old tree we sometimes see that where you have borers under the trunk but um they're plum trees are can be among the most prolific but they are not a real long live tree and as far as being susceptible to different problems i have to say they're they're kind of the wimps of the fruit trees so there are a few things that i'll recommend uh for i'm, I'm glad you got two varieties because you always get more santa rosa is a self-fertile plum but having a second variety there is really going to going to increase uh the number of plums that you get but uh, not in any particular order, but I most definitely would be sure that the root flare 
is exposed. Those are grafted trees. That graft point, which you can tell if you look down at the base of the tree, is probably going to be somewhere between four and six inches out of the ground, but the trunk should be totally open down to where those major roots start flaring out at the base. Most fruit trees come to us planted too deeply in the pot. They wind up planted in the ground too deeply, and having that trunk covered will lead to problems like this gamosis type of thing that you're seeing on the bark. So I would first of all be sure that the that the root flare is exposed. Just in case you have any borers, um, it certainly wouldn't hurt to get a little bit of orange oil. You want to dilute it like two or three tablespoons to a gallon of water or uh, maybe on small trees, two or three teaspoons to a quart of water, and just spray the trunk of the tree, just, you know, either early morning or in the evening when it cools down a little bit. Just go up and down and spray the trunk of the tree, and this will actually take care of quite a few problems underneath the bark of the tree. Now, the third thing about your plum long-term is to really keep the trees healthy, vigorous, and producing well, You need to thin those trees out very heavily every year. We normally do this during the dormant season, but we thin plum trees out to the tune of removing 50-60% of the little limbs that are coming out up and down the trunk and the bigger limbs, and that keeps them vigorous. That normally will keep them producing every year. If you don't go through and do that thorough pruning every winter, you'll end up with having one big crop of fruit one year and almost no fruit the next year, and your trees will be much shorter lives. So, uh, Little orange oil on the on the bark. Little, uh, be sure the root flare is exposed, and be sure every year that you thin them out pretty heavily. You do that, and you should get a, a really nice plum crop every year. Okay, so this gamosis um, is it? It's a bacterial. It is most commonly bacterial, and when you simply get your trees a little stronger, the tree will fight off that. We occasionally see it from having some borers under the trunk, and that's what your orange oil is going to take care of. But uh, there's not really any direct treatment for the bacteria, but just getting the tree a little more vigorously growing, the tree will outgrow the problem. Would the whole whole ground cornmeal? No, whole ground cornmeal works against fungal problems, and this is bacterial. Uh, Good organic fertilizer would certainly be a big help. Great. Thank you so much for your help. I appreciate it.